This is the December 2022 EM Reviews and Perspectives, EM Wrap. This is Swami. I am here, as always, with Jan Schoenberger. Jan, great to be back in December. It's great to be with you as well. And here we are at the end of the year. I can't believe it, as usual. I know. Amazing. Amazing that we have reached the end of the year, which, of course, Jan, means that we're going to have the Rappies, the MRAP Awards for our favorite segments and skits and songs. We've gotten some nominations from the viewership. We've also gotten some nominations internally. So check that out. It's going to be at the end of the program. you got to check out the Rappies and hear all of the great stuff. Remind yourself of all of the great stuff from the year. Yeah, it's a flashback. It's a travel back in time. The Rappies are just the best. And if you missed things, then you get an opportunity to go back and listen to them again. Absolutely. Well, Jan, let's get into actually this month's content before we get to the Rappies. And you've got a case to kick us off. The case. I have a 75-year-old female who is brought in by ambulance from home. Chief complaint is syncope. Her vital signs are all pretty normal at this point. Her blood pressure is a little high, 158 over 70, not too bad. Heart rate of 75, respiratory rate, temp, pulse ox, all normal. Her finger stick glucose in the field is normal. Her 12-lead EKG in the field does not show a STEMI. She's coming into your booth, Swami. What do you want next? From what you're telling me, this isn't a patient that I have to run over right away. And so I can actually kind of systematically think through this. Obviously, I want to see that ECG because it's not just STEMI we're worried about. We're worried about all of the other things in the ECG that can cause syncope. So does the patient have a block or one of these odd things like WPW or Brugada? And obviously, you'd think that if the person was 75, we would know if they had WPW or Brugada. But I have been surprised, Jan. I think the oldest I ever had was a 68-year-old with WPW. Of course, it's one of those patients who's like, oh, I haven't seen a doctor in uh, 60 years. So every once in a while you get surprised, but I want to scour that EKG, probably going to get some blood work going. But what we really need is, is a better history. What was happening before the syncope? Was it exertional? Were there any associated symptoms? What does the exam look like now? How does the patient feel in front of you? Absolutely. So let's start with some quick testing. Totally agree with you. So you're going to get a 12 lead ECG. It shows you that she's got a paced rhythm at about a rate of 75. You send off some labs. You get maybe a point of care hemoglobin, which is normal. And this woman is alert, awake. She's talking to you. And she tells you, I don't really remember having any chest pain or shortness of breath. I feel pretty good now. She's a little scared about what happened because she has a history of heart issues. And so she's you know, a little concerned, but she's, she looks pretty good to you. Yeah, reassuring stuff so far. 12-lead ECG looks good. The vitals are okay. Amal, of course, is sitting on my right shoulder saying there is no test needed in syncope aside from a 12-lead ECG. But, you know, this person's 75 and they've got a pacemaker in. So there's a good chance that we're going to get electrolytes. We're going to get that hemoglobin, which he already gave us. Without any chest pain or shortness of breath, I don't know that I'm going to jump to needing a troponin. But there are other things that I still need to tease out in that history that might send me in one direction or another. Was it definitely syncope? This is always a question we ask. Did the patient actually have a seizure? And so we want a little bit of that information. Was there a post-ictal phase? Was there any tonic-clonic movements? Which you can get tonic-clonic jerks with syncope, of course, but this might help us to say, actually, there's something else going on here. And then has the patient had this happen before? Is this a first-time syncopal event or are there multiple syncopes? What was the patient, again, doing at the time that it happened? All of this might tell us which direction we're going next, even if our workup is negative. Yeah. And, you know, just like Amal would say, and we would say, you know, syncope doesn't need a lot of testing. And in those circumstances, when you're not going to do a lot of tests, what is important, as you mentioned, is a detailed history. 
And if you can find a witness who actually could describe to you what happened, that is gold. And often you can't, but sometimes you can. And that's where you got to be a detective, you know, and find out who was there, who might have witnessed us, you know, tell us what happened. So in this particular case, this patient's husband was home when this happened. And he says, you know, she was in her recliner. She's laying back. She was talking to family on FaceTime. And, you know, he handed the phone to her to do the FaceTime with the grandkids. And then he walked into the kitchen. And a couple minutes later, he heard a thud and he went in and the phone had fallen on the floor and she was sort of semi-conscious coming around asking what happened. And so he called 911. Some really interesting things in there, Jan, because she was on FaceTime. So it might actually be interesting to talk to whoever she was talking to on FaceTime and ask them what happened, right? Because they might have actually seen her seize or, or, or seen something else happen. So that might be some interesting additional information. It doesn't sound like he actually saw the event. But he can tell us that afterwards, she wasn't really postictal. She didn't urinate on herself. She doesn't have a tongue bite. So these are the things that, that can help us to tease those things apart. But, you know, there's, there's some concerning things in here. Like she, it's not like she was sitting down and she stood up, felt lightheaded and passed out, right? There's not like a clear positional thing that makes you think, oh, this is nothing really serious. She's lying down. Now, it's not exertional. Exertional syncope is obviously really concerning. But so is at-rest syncope. Like When the person's just like sitting there doing nothing and they syncopize, that worries me. And I think the one thing that we've mentioned a couple of times, you've mentioned a couple of times, is the pacemaker that she's got, that she's got a pace rhythm. I think we need a little bit more information about the pacemaker. And when I say information about the pacemaker, I mean, I want to talk to the pacemaker and find out if we can track back and find out what happened when this event happened. So if we can interrogate that device. All right, let's have it. Ah, so now we're getting into the interesting part of the story. So yes, I agree with you. She has a pacemaker. And so you want to know what happened in a cardiac sense. And again, just like you said, I, you know, we walked through the, is she dehydrated? Was she in the bathroom? I mean, all the things that you should think of was syncope and really nothing was panning out except for this history of her being on the phone and laying back. So a pacemaker interrogation was performed and it turns out that the device at this time behaved basically as if a magnet had been placed on it. And it turns out that this woman, as she was laying back in her recliner and had her iPhone 12 Pro Max on her chest, FaceTiming with her grandkids. Now, there are magnets in that iPhone, and it had basically involved the pacemaker and given her a quick arrhythmia that she came out of when it fell on the floor. So that's kind of incredible because when, when you said that the pacemaker behaved like it had a magnet on it, I was kind of picturing like in the cartoons when Wile E. Coyote comes over and puts like the big magnet down to attract the roadrunner, like yes. somebody had put that over her house. Usually to get it into the magnet setting for the pacemaker, it's a pretty big magnet. I mean, we see those things on our crash carts, right? That's a pretty strong magnet. What you're telling me is that the iPhone has an equivalent level of magnet in it, or at least if it's in very close contact, it can cause something similar. I definitely did not know that, Jan. And I, I doubt that my patients know that the iPhone 12 and up can act as a magnet on your pacemaker. Isn't this interesting? So if you think about if you have one of these newer iPhones, remember that you can do wireless charging, right? You can put it on a mat or something, and it, it magnetically attaches to that thing and it charges. So it turns out with the iPhone 12 and up, they actually have pretty strong magnets in them. This is the MagSafe wireless charging technology. And actually, the AHA and Apple have all put out warnings about this model of iPhone and products like it that have magnets in them. And those magnets also make it easy to attach to cases and wallets. And so there's a bunch of reasons they put them there. But for these particular patients, 
If you have it right up against the chest, if you have it within a very close distance, it actually can cause interference. And, you know, people have talked about for a long time, you know, can't have cell phones in the ICU and there's signs everywhere. But the truth is that most of that was garbage. It really didn't make a big difference because there weren't strong magnets in these things. But it turns out that these models have them. So I think it's really an interesting thing to know about. So don't walk through the cardiac ICU with your iPhone and put it on everyone's chest. That is a bad (laughs) thing to do. (laughs) Of course, we want to know kind of the opposite. Can I drop the iPhone on somebody who I want their pacemaker to default into magnet settings? I'm going to go ahead and guess that Apple does not encourage you to do that, and neither does the AHA, and you should still be getting that big old magnet off of your crash cart. Yeah. You know, so interesting, of course, there's a bunch of publications out there now where people are taking these different devices and they're doing you know, in vivo and ex vivo experiments to see like how many centimeters exactly, you know, do you need to be away for it to be safe? And it really does turn out it has to be quite close, like within a centimeter for it to do this. So they even say that if you have your iPhone in the top pocket, if you actually flip it the other way around, so the back is facing out, then the magnet is even that much further away from your pacer. And so it's probably okay. Now, Apple formally recommends 15 centimeters of distance, but everyone agrees that's probably ridiculous. It's way overkill. It has to be really right up against it, but it can actually give you the magnetic force to cause a problem. So don't put it in your shirt pocket in general. I think that's probably a good thing to avoid. Maybe like the, the breast pocket of the jacket. If you're wearing a jacket, maybe avoid that. It should probably just go in your regular pants pocket in a purse, something like that, and just keep it away from your chest if you have a pacemaker. Jan, this is not really where I thought we'd be going with this. I thought we were going to talk about ECGs, maybe debating the utility of a troponin. But no, no, no. It all comes back to that iPhone. It does. It always does. You know, Apple wins every time. So, you know, it comes right back to it. Now, we will link to all these papers and evidence in the show notes in case you're interested in doing a deeper dive, which is, of course, when this case came around, I did. So I, I have a lot of references for it. But it's a really interesting thing. All right. And I would love to hear stories from our listeners. If this has happened to anybody or if you've heard of this happening, I'm just interested to see how widespread this is. But Jane, this does bring us back to one really important take home because people are going to be like, how likely is this to happen to me that I need to know this? But I think it comes back to the point that anytime somebody has a pacemaker and they come in with syncope or near syncope or palpitations, you really have to get that thing interrogated. And there's a little bit of a barrier to doing that depending on the hospital you work in. Sometimes you have to call the device manufacturer, have someone sent in to interrogate, which can take a long time. Sometimes you have the devices for interrogation in your department and you have to use them. That can take a long time. We were talking before about one of the places I worked. That's what we had to do. And they needed a good, strong Wi-Fi signal. So we had to like walk around the department with these things to make sure that we were getting a good signal to transmit. But it's one of these things that you have to do. I think Amal would probably agree. You got to get the ECG if someone syncopizes. If they syncopize and they have a pacemaker or defibrillator, you want to get that thing interrogated and find out if it was involved there or if it can give you information about what happened. Absolutely. And the history in syncope is everything. Had it not been for really kind of digging deep as to exactly what she was doing, what do we know about the exact moment when this happened? We wouldn't have figured all this out. So, you know, ask lots of questions. This patient looks good in front of you. So you're right. It's easy to not interrogate. It's easy to just walk away. But good history, interrogate that pacemaker, you'll figure it out. Absolutely. All right, Jen, great case. Really interesting. I love these little nuances of care that we have to get into. But let's talk about the rest of the program because we have some really good stuff in the show. We have a couple of segments that I particularly liked. I always love when Swad sits down with Justin Carlson for the man from Ilkor, talking about some of those updates. Some of these are controversial. 
We're probably going to get some nasty letters, especially from some of our ultrasound brethren, but there's some really good stuff in here for us to talk about and should really stir some conversation and debate. And then I also really enjoyed talking pigtails with Weingart because we are changing over using far more pigtail catheters than we used to. So it's good to get into a little bit of the nuances there. We are also using more pigtail catheters, so I enjoyed that piece as well. And I liked Eileen Claudius's conversation with Chris Lemon this month on medical apps. It was a great review of some good ones to get. Uh, I can guarantee that there are some that they talk about that you haven't heard of. It's kind of like Wirecutter in the New York Times where you get the reviews of like what's the best stuff out there. And so I enjoyed this one. I love that piece too because I've started to do more pediatrics, which means I need these apps on my phone. I need that reference that I can get very quickly. Also, Jan, I want to give a shout out to UC Max. We missed it, but we launched UC Max back in October. This is with Gita Pensa and Mike Weinstock. They are leading the show. Lots of urgent care type stuff that sometimes we don't get to put on MRAP. And now this is really like a nice pairing. So we get some of the cutting edge stuff on MRAP. We get the urgent care stuff that we don't always talk about here. It's all over there. And one of the pieces that I really, really love this particular month is one on pharmacologic interventions for cough. Gita sits down with Brian Hayes to talk about that. I know Brian Hayes is one of your favorite people. We're all a little mad that Gita has poached Brian over to UC Max to do some more segments. But of course, we'll still have Brian back here to do our segments as well. Yeah, jump over there and take a listen to that. I do love Brian Hayes, it's true. And cough is one of the most annoying symptoms out there. So I'd like to know as much as I can about it. So I'm coming to listen to you, Brian. Absolutely. And Jan, with that, we are going to launch into our month. We have some other great stuff to listen to. There's everything from ECMO in kids to blood transfusion. Lots of great topics. And Jan, I will, of course, see you on the other side in the mailbag. All right, Swami, I'll see you there. And happy holidays, everyone. Happy December. Happy end of the year. And we're going to see you in 2023, no matter what. Shut up for a second. December reminds me of Time's Arrow Flow. That no matter what you do, next year will hit you in the face. No matter what. Thank you. Is that another original? These are great. Rural Medicine Talks. So this story occurs at my old employment facility, which was a small rural place in upstate New York. You'll remember about 28,000 volume, but two and a half hours by ground to a tertiary care center. We had services including OB, pediatrics, general surgery, anesthesia sort of during the daytime. And then certainly you were the only physician at night. That's Julie Veith. She's an eMERGE doc at the University of Vermont Medical Center and at the Elizabethtown Community Hospital. So let's hear about what happened on this particular shift. Luckily, this was a daytime shift. Midweek, late morning, we got a call from EMS saying they were bringing this 50-year-old female in. She had some shortness of breath, but now profound respiratory distress. They found her with initial O2 sats in the 60s. And for them, she quickly became altered. They placed her on a non-rebreather. They got her up to only in the 80s. And so they switched to CPAP at 15 liters, still setting though only in the 80s. They didn't have a ton of history to provide. They said maybe some asthma. So they'd started giving two duonebs as well as 10 milligrams of dexamethasone. They obviously had some IV access and they did obtain a blood glucose for that altered mental status. And it came back at 190. Immediately, you know, we start prepping a room just for a standard respiratory distress. 
I actually happened to have a second physician on with me. So I said, well, I'll take this one. You keep the rest of the department going. I called our respiratory therapist to give them a heads up. We didn't have an ETA at the moment. So that was a little unusual looking back. And actually shortly after that initial radio call, we got a call back from EMS saying, oh, by the way, she's 800 pounds. And so we're going to have to get a bariatric stretcher from another town, which means our ETA will actually be closer to 30 minutes. Okay, so that changes the possible anxiety around this particular case and also the logistics around this. As you said, you're having to get different stretchers and there's going to be delays in accessing her care. So this adds a little layer of complexity. All right. This also changed our view towards any type of airway plan, nursing plan. And as you said, the equipment was going to be an issue. I contacted our nursing director and found out that our own ED stretchers would not actually accommodate someone at 800 pounds if that was in fact her weight. Ours would only safely go up to about six to 650. So that meant we didn't have anything that we could transition this patient to in our emergency department, including an inpatient bed. Apparently, when we have bariatric patients like this, we actually have to order beds that we then rent for the time period of their admission. So there was nothing available that was going to keep this patient comfortable other than the stretcher that she was going to arrive on with EMS. But in the meantime, I thought, well, the primary issue here is going to be respiratory. So what is going to be our plan? At this patient's weight of approximately 800 pounds, could we establish an airway safely? Did she have any respiratory reserve? And, you know, what was going to be our backup? Of course, we think about that in every patient, but just knowing the bariatric component to this definitely complicated things. Now the patient arrives. What do you see? She arrives on this bariatric EMS stretcher. She's sitting 90 degrees upright on CPAP, completely updunded. We were able to get an initial set of vital signs, which were quite reassuring given the circumstances. She did have a blood pressure, 160 over 133. Not sure how real that diastolic was. Her heart rate was 95. She was breathing 28 to 32. She was afebrile. And the O2 set we were getting was only 84% on CPAP. She had an IV in place. There was no family member present, unfortunately, with her. And EMS didn't have any additional information to give me other than what we've already heard. Also, I had no previous records in our electronic medical record system because she'd never been at our institution or anything that we could access in the past. Let's try and break it down a little bit. So what are the three main presenting issues that you're thinking about? First, obviously, ABCs with that neurostatus. So respiratory distress or respiratory failure at this point with hypoxia, not knowing if there was a hypercarbic component. This questionable history of asthma could there be CHF? And then obviously, airway, 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 given that she's obtunded. But that's definitely a little bit more complicated than just saying secure an airway. So I switched her over to BiPAP to buy me some time. There are a couple of other big issues here. This altered mental status, for one. What were your thoughts on that? Initially, again, I wasn't really sure if this was just all hypercarbia leading to the altered mental status. Could there be a neuroetiology here, any type of tox? I had no one else at the bedside from this household to tell me any additional information. There was no way I was going to get um, a decent neuro exam on this patient to, for example, rule out or try to rule in any type of stroke or you know, profound neurological event. We already had that blood glucose 
which was normal. So we at least ruled out hypoglycemia, but other tox things, you know, her pupils were not pinpoint. Certainly could have thought about Narcan in this instance, but didn't feel the need to go down that pathway. Yeah. And although it can be frustrating not to have sort of the history that can really direct you how to proceed, in some other ways, when things are really stressful, it can also be a bit of a relief because you're like, I'm just going to focus on the ABCs. Like right now, I've just got to focus on that and we'll figure out the differentials and all the extra tests that we'll do afterwards. So that can sometimes be a bit of a bonus when you're in the first, you know, five to 10 minutes. Obviously, her size, this is an issue that, you know, in terms of the physical infrastructure that you needed, the special stretchers, and what other limitations or stressors did that put on your team in terms of how you were going to be able to care for her? The fact that she was reportedly 800 pounds cannot be ignored. It's extremely difficult to care for a patient of this weight and size, no matter what condition we're treating and dealing with. And so we just had to proceed with what we had at the bedside and really take this all into account and and try to work around this limitation. One thing that we ended up doing quite quickly after we switched her over to BiPAP was I ended up positioning someone on each side of her head to support her head, keep it upright, and actually keep her airway open. And those techs ended up doing that for quite a while, which we will talk about. But that helped in her positioning and in her oxygenation. So between those two maneuvers of, of getting her on BiPAP and then straightening her airway manually, one on each side to keep that upright, with her BiPAP settings of 20 over 12 and putting her right on 100%, I was actually able to get her O2 set up to 96%. She was pulling decent tidal volumes on that. So I could take a sigh of relief, at least knowing we were oxygenating her and now could figure out what we were going to do next. What about other elements of the physical exam and what other interventions did you do? Well, in terms of the mental status, you know, this concern about her GCS, which, you know, really is a trauma number, but let's just talk about it for a second. I mean, we're sort of always taught GCS less than eight, like this number eight is magical, apparently, and we're supposed to secure that airway. I couldn't even think about that at the time, because all I knew right now is that if I tried to do that, she would have a high mortality rate. And so I ignored temporarily the fact that she was obtunded and on BiPAP, which we can think is perhaps a contraindication to BiPAP. But at this point, again, it was just buying me time while I could collect some data, try to do an exam, et cetera. In terms of her exam, I couldn't hear anything. Number one, we had her in a room that had one of these external machines for negative pressure, which are extremely loud because this was still during, you know, a, a COVID peak. And so adding in that extra sound plus the fact that I just couldn't get a stethoscope to penetrate that chest wall to hear anything, that was quite a useless part of my exam. Ultrasound, again, couldn't couldn't penetrate enough of the chest wall to, to really see anything there. In terms of her lower extremities, I thought maybe there was a little bit of edema, but honestly, it was really difficult to tell if that was edema or adiposity in her lower extremities. I did have that data point that she was normo or hypertensive, so that was reassuring. We were able to get an EKG quite quickly. It was sinus rhythm to sinus tack with a right bundle, but no obvious ischemic changes. And I was able to get a VBG giving me uh, quick results in her chemistry and most of her electrolytes. That was extremely useful. We're going to talk about her lab results in a second, but did you have IV access going at this point? 
Was it difficult to get access? So how did you go through with that thought process? So EMS had been able to secure one 20-gauge peripheral IV, which was fantastic. And we were actually able to pretty easily get a second one in. So I didn't have to mess around with either an IO or an ultrasound-guided IV, et cetera. So phew, check mark, done. Let's move on. You mentioned COVID. I'm assuming you did a COVID swab. What about any other acute medications? You mentioned that should be given to nebulizers. Is there anything else that you were throwing at her at this point? Yeah, so she'd been given those two nebulizer treatments and 10 milligrams of dexamethasone. I was still in this, does she have asthma or not? And so I thought, what the heck? Let's throw some magnesium at her and keep another nebulizer going through the uh, BiPAP. Okay, so you mentioned that you had the bedside um, labs. So what did those show? Well, her potassium came back at 6.3, but with a normal BUN and creatinine. But she did have this right bundle on EKG. I had nothing old to compare to. So what the heck? Let's throw some calcium at that in case that potassium is real and not hemolyzed from the type of uh, blood draw that this was. Oh, okay. And what about her gas? Her gas was still pending at this point, which, you know, is really never a good sign when it takes a little bit longer. But luckily in this situation, a little bit longer meant only a couple of minutes. And that VBG ended up coming back with a pH of 7.18. Now the bicarb on that was 31. That's not a serum bicarb. And it also was able to give me a lactate of 2.6. And so from that information, I knew, you know, well, she's acidotic. I didn't have an accurate PCO2 because it was reading too high on the VBG. Okay, so we've got an acidotic patient. She's on BiPAP. She's got uh, widened QRS. Her potassium's up. She's obtunded. She's got two people holding her airway open. And we still don't know a lot about this person. Um, Has any family called in or anyone arrived? Are you getting any extra information? At this point, her husband did arrive. He confirms that there is this history of asthma. She is triple COVID vaccinated, and she'd had a negative COVID test at home two days ago. She does not smoke. She's not on home oxygen. She's never been diagnosed with COPD. There's no formal diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea, but she does sleep sitting upright because she can't breathe when she lies flat, is what he reports. He also adds that she stopped walking two months ago and her weight started increasing, and he thinks that she's been retaining fluid for the last two weeks. Also, um, you mentioned that she tested negative COVID at home two days prior. Did you have your COVID result back yet, or was this PCR brewing in the lab and was going to be there for days and days? Oh, no, that had just popped back, and it was positive. COVID positive, respiratory failure, asthmatic, morbid obesity. And What did you guys do next? Well, with this added history from the husband that she'd been retaining fluid for the last two weeks, I thought, what the heck? This is completely still undifferentiated, besides the fact that we now have a positive COVID result. But maybe there is some new heart failure here. I mean, certainly she has risk factors to develop heart failure. So I decided to add in some Lasix. I had that normal creatinine and also a higher dose nitroglycerin drip. While I was waiting for other data points to come back, And while I had summoned a crew to the bedside to decide at this point, what are we going to do with this lady's airway since she's still quite obtunded? What did your uh, team of airway experts have to say? Well, like I mentioned, this was a weekday, mid to late morning. So I was able to call our chief anesthesiologist. Our ENT surgeon happened to be across the street doing office visits. So I called him. I had the second ED physician as well, and so we decided to do a little airway huddle and go through 
the pros and cons of do we need an airway? And if so, what kind of airway? And how are we going to actually get that into her trachea in order to do this safely without contributing to any increased morbidity and mortality? Well, the first response from everybody was, oh, heck, no way. We're not touching this. (laughs) We kept talking after that, oh, heck, no way moment. And we went through, you know, do we just keep her on BiPAP? Yes, she's obtunded, but we have these two people at the bedside. The nurse was also in the room constantly. And so it wasn't as if we were placing her on BiPAP in an obtunded state and then just walking away, which is obviously something you never want to do. So from that aspect, that actually seemed maybe that was reasonable and just sort of see what happened over the next hour or two. All right, so that's option number one. Option number two is we have this unrecordable PCO2 level on a VBG and, you know, clearly she's uptunded and acidotic and now also COVID positive. So you have that PPE aerosolizing component to think about. But we're two years into the pandemic at this point. So we, you know, we know how to protect ourselves. Do we try to intubate this woman? Well, what are the different ways we could do that? Clearly, this is not somebody that you want to paralyze and take away any of her drive. So that was off the table immediately. Do we try a fiber optic approach? Well, the problem with that is that she really didn't seem to have any pulmonary reserve and fiber optic takes, you know, a little bit of time. And so ENT and anesthesia were not fans of this approach at all even if we kept her drive up, just because we couldn't take her off BiPAP or CPAP in order to do that. So that was kind of immediately off the table. Do we put an LMA in? Well, was an LMA actually better than what we were doing right now? Because probably with an LMA, we might have to sedate her a little bit just to tolerate that. That didn't really feel like we were getting greener grass by moving to that option. Crike? Ooh, yikes. You know, not great in the best of times in an emergency. And then you add in the fact that her neck is, you know, she's got adiposity there. That also seemed like not an ideal situation. Or do we go with this awake sort of anterior or what someone I saw call is like the tomahawk approach, you know, where you keep her upright, you approach from the front or from keeping her at 90 degrees and really reaching all the way over her with a bougie and a video. So those were all of the options that came up. I'm sure others listening will say, well, why didn't you do X, Y, or Z um, and have other options? But this is what our team came up with in the moment, looking at this patient with the data points we had in front of us. And we're just going to let her sit here for a second while we really try and do this the best we can, because you do actually have time right now. You obviously don't want to leave her in this state forever, but she is ventilating. She is oxygenating. So it gives you that little bit of wiggle room, which can really be a huge help. And the idea of having this huddle where you might have thought of all these things on your own, but having someone to bounce the ideas off of and say, am I crazy to think that we shouldn't do this? You know, do you think it's okay not to do this? And having the team approach, I think is really helpful. Yeah, and I think that's where exposing yourself to as many type of airway cases as possible during residency, or if you're working in a larger institution, and then you know you're going to be going to these smaller places, getting all of that experience is just so important because not everything follows a textbook, as as you mentioned. So this was definitely one of those situations where we we went through all of the different options, including the option of just leaving her as she was. And in the end, that's actually what we ended up doing. Our anesthesiologist went back upstairs to the OR, ENT uh, surgeon went back across to his office. And luckily, this other ED physician, she was sort of managing the rest of the ED while I was 
glued in this room. We were coming up with a plan with the nurse. And by the way, these two techs were still holding her head upright. So did you get any more tests back at this point um, or do any other interventions in terms of medications? Her troponin was negative and her BNP was up at 2,500. I mean, definitely high and in the setting of someone who supposedly doesn't have heart failure, abnormal, but it wasn't 14 or 20,000. I also had a CBC showing a white count of 12. And I thought, "Eh, heck, why not? Let's throw some antibiotics in her. Definitely with the COVID adding in some complicating factors, maybe there's a viral pneumonia there that certainly I'm not going to treat with antibiotics, but maybe she has a superimposed bacterial on top of that. And really, of all the patients that we give antibiotics to, I thought she probably deserves some. So we covered her for community-acquired pneumonia as well. So I had also, by this point, added in some insulin and IV glucose, just again to treat that hyper-K. The plan was that we would repeat her labs an hour after that and just see what we were at and also obtain it an actual lab sample. Okay. Now, you mentioned when she first came in that she was on this bariatric EMS stretcher. Was she still on this stretcher at this point? Because I imagine that makes just maneuvering around her that much more difficult. Oh, yes, she was. We had not received any new equipment from any outlying hospital, although our maintenance team had decided to drive to our sister hospital about 40 minutes away, where someone had discovered an old bariatric bed in a back hallway that was actually still usable. And so they were working on getting that into a truck to bring us that, but it hadn't arrived yet. Okay, and how is she doing at this point? Well, she's not worse. I wouldn't say she's better, but I'll take not worse at this point. But we were having difficulty, you know, getting accurate blood pressures. I wasn't really sure if I had a that systolic of 160. Certainly, I didn't think that diastolic of 130 was accurate. So I did ask our anesthesiologist before he left to just put in an A-line to help us out. And so he was able to get that in for me. And then we could also pull off ABGs which was going to really help me guide therapy. And what results did you get from the ABG? So our first ABG was drawn probably about an hour after she arrived. Her pH was still 7.19, but her PCO2 was 89, which was certainly better than, you know, unrecordable on that VBG that I'd gotten before. And her PO2 was actually 215 with an O2 sat on that ABG of 99%. So I was really actually quite reassured by that and hoping that, well, maybe if we just stay the course, we can correct some of these numbers and maybe her altered mental status will improve. But that's a lot of wishful thinking. And the other point in this case was that I knew I couldn't keep her at the hospital I was currently working at. Yeah, I was gonna say, I mean, this entire time while you're trying to manage this case of seemingly respiratory failure, whether it's hypercarbic or another source, it's in the back of your head the whole time you must be thinking, I need to get this person out of here and, you know, stabilize and go. So what were your thoughts on transfer? Where would she be going? And how were you going to get her there? Yeah, all great questions. So I started by calling one of our tertiary care center hospitals that we typically will transfer many of our patients to. But by ground, it's two hours and 45 minutes. And so we were looking at at least that transport time because our flight options were off limits, uh, given her bariatric size. Luckily, they had an ICU bed. The ICU physician was more than willing to take this patient. So that was a huge relief. But we were going to have to wait for a team to come from their institution two hours. Again, that's about a three-hour drive. And then transfer her back. Oh, but that team was out on another transfer. So we're going to have to wait for the nighttime team to come in at 7 o'clock. 
do their huddle, and then start their drive over to us. So I'm looking at a minimum time of keeping her in our ED now of 10 to 12 hours. Give us a sense of her clinical status at this point. Had her mental status started to improve yet? How are things going? It really hadn't at this point. But over the afternoon, since she was with me all afternoon, we started to actually see some gradual improvements. And it was tracking with her ABGs. Her pH was starting to improve. Her PCO2 was starting to trend down. She started to improve in her mental status and actually would wake up to voice, follow very simple commands, and then kind of drift off again. In those few hours after her initial presentation, I ended up also stopping that nitro drip. Her blood pressure started to come down too quickly. And I wasn't convinced that this was flash pulmonary edema or that I was really getting any bang for my buck with this nitro drip. I was still thinking that this was more asthma, maybe even COPD, but you know, really more asthma in this situation with her impaired airway, given that we still had two people holding her airway open. And if she had been at home on the floor or not in an ideal position at home, there was a good chance she'd been hours at home without a properly opened airway, which is, had also likely contributed to her hypercarbia. Eventually, I'm assuming transfer team came. Did they have to have a special equipment in their ambulance? They ended up coming with one of their bigger, more you know, critical care ambulances, which are just huge. And they also brought an extra staff, given the bariatric size of the patient, so that they could manipulate her in the back of the ambulance if they needed to. By that point, also, I would say mid-afternoon, probably four hours by the time she'd gotten there, this old bariatric bed had arrived from another hospital. So using extra staff from the operating room, techs from all over the hospital, I ended up orchestrating her movement from this bariatric EMS stretcher over to this bariatric bed. We had 12 people around her. We were able to get a hover mat under her, which really helped. We were able to position her airway as we transitioned her over. She was definitely more comfortable. And we were able to position pillows and just the head of the bed a lot more so that I didn't have to have two techs keeping her airway open five hours into this. They had been there for the entire time keeping her airway open up to this point. Any news on how she did? My understanding is she continued to improve throughout the evening, actually, to the point where her departing ABG was 7.3, PCO2 of 57. We'd been able to wean down her FiO2 and so, and, you know, requiring a couple doses of haloperidol. In fact, at the point where the transfer team got there, she started arguing with them that she didn't want to go. So she was definitely (laughs) awake enough to have that conversation. I believe that the team basically insisted that she depart and, and go to this bigger institution. And she made it there safely. She ended up staying at the tertiary care center um, for about two weeks. She avoided intubation. She was only in the ICU for two days. She ended up being weaned to high-flow nasal cannula and then down to regular nasal cannula to the point where they were going to place her on two liters during the daytime, BiPAP at night. They couldn't do an official sleep study because of her COVID status. But they diureased her over 100 pounds. She went negative 70 liters, and she actually became slightly more mobile, which was fantastic. I think that's such an interesting case and brings up so many different points in terms of just the physical infrastructure that's needed for caring for larger patients, the manpower that's needed, and also, again, this issue of intubation. And I think we're always trained to, you know, secure the airway, get it done right away, right away. 
But sometimes it's not always the right thing for the patient. And one of the benefits, I think, of rural locations is that we don't necessarily have that pressure to intubate right away because we know we're going to be sitting with these patients for a long time and we know we will be watching them evolve and it's going to be us who's in charge of them. And so I think I probably am able to avoid intubations in a lot of these cases where in a bigger center they might get intubated right away and, you know, and sort of sent off to the ICU. Of course, it would be nice for the flow of the emergency department and for our stress levels if that could happen in rural locations. But at the same time, we also get to see how the pathology is evolving. And often our patients will surprise us. And with just a little bit of support, they will come back and start yelling and complaining that they want to go home. Yeah, absolutely. I'm quite convinced that had we tried to intubate this patient, we probably would have killed her. I don't have any doubt that it would have been very messy, very stressful. She had no pulmonary reserve. And her husband had even told us, you know, she can't lie flat. And I think even in the best of circumstances with the most expert airway team possible, this would have been an absolute disaster. And even if you had been able to intubate her and, you know, stabilized her on the vent, how would she be extubated? This could have been, you know, she would get an infection in the ICU and she already had COVID going on. This is just so many different ways that this could have gone terribly. And I think you guys really did her a great service by taking the time and just doing it step by step and recognizing that sometimes people fall outside of those algorithms. Yeah, sitting on your hands and feeling like you're doing nothing except BiPAP and holding your head upright certainly doesn't always feel like the right thing to do. But in this situation, I think it was. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much for sharing this case and keep the stories coming. And we're always interested to hear about how things are in rural New York and uh, Vermont. Thanks so much, Julie. Thanks, Vanessa. Talk to you soon. It's time again for... It's, uh, it's some of the best time of my month. It's <laughs> Scott Weingarten. Critical care. <laughs> Mailbag. <laughs> it is a great time of month. Great time of month for me, too. Get to talk to you. Get to pick your brain. And we have a listener story and question about pigtail catheters that I want to get into. But before we get to the listener question, Scott, I want to go really basic because we didn't all grow up using these pigtail catheters. What are they? What are we talking about when we say pigtail catheter? What is a pigtail catheter? Yeah, this was a big sea change in the resuscitative specialties like emergency medicine and critical care. We were whelped all on chest tubes. Now, the interventional folks always had these at their disposal, and uh, they were using them, but it didn't really come into our world, I'd say, until what, maybe a decade ago. So if you train you know, 30 years ago, you might not even have ever been exposed to these. What they are is they're just narrow bore catheters, and the reason they call them a pig's tail is they have a natural shape that curls at the end so that they actually will sit in multiple areas of a pocket of fluid and uh, they'll have uh, fenestrations all throughout that curving. And so instead of just like a central line catheter, which only at the distal tip has a hole, they have holes throughout and it's curved so that hopefully one of those holes will orient in such a space that you can continue to drain fluid out of the space you stick them in. And when you say that it's a smaller catheter, how small are we talking about here? I mean, you could get them in a variety of sizes. The most common ones you're going to see range somewhere between 8 and 14 French. <laughs> the ones that we're using for things like chest drainage usually will be in the 14 French range, or that's what they should be, if you really want to get both fluid and gas out. And then like for something like a pericardiosynthesis, uh, generally an 8, 8.5 French is where you're looking at. When you and I trained, and when probably most of our listeners trained, if you had a patient with a traumatic pneumothorax, a traumatic hemothorax, it was a chest tube. That's what you did. You drained it with a chest tube. 
Perhaps if it was spontaneous pneumo, you could use a small two, but typically we were going with 36 French or larger. And those are like garden hoses. They're enormous. And over time, we have transitioned. We have changed the size of that chest tube. We've gone down. We've gotten smaller and smaller. And now we're seeing more literature emerging about the use of pigtails. Can we use pigtails in all the places that we are using chest tubes? Or maybe, Scott, we can rephrase the question as, is there a place where I can't use a pigtail catheter in trauma? Uh, here, here's where I think you live. Uh, and let's deal with trauma and non-trauma cases. So if you're putting a chest tube in for a pneumothorax, a pure gas-based problem, then that is crazy. And that's unfair to the patient. You're creating additional pain, scarring, misery. And so you shouldn't be doing that. Pigtail is absolutely, I think, should be the standard of care at this point. There's no reason for anything bigger than a 14 French. It makes it a lot easier to place. And it's a very safe placement when there's a big pocket of gas there. So that's pretty easy. Plural fusions, I think it's pretty much the same thing. For almost every case, a pigtail makes sense. It's going to drain the fluid just fine. Now, where it gets a little bit blurry is things like hemothorax or blood and empyema. Now, that being said, there is evidence for both of those that a 14 French pigtail probably could do the job in both of those cases as well. So a big enough pigtail, 14 French, probably could handle hemothorax, probably could handle empyema, but the data I think is not clear enough to really make the case that that should be standard care yet. But people like friend of the show, Kenji Namba, I think are pushing the envelope more and more. And I think what you will see in the future is that those big chest tubes will be reserved for the patient peri-death coming in with a traumatic you know, arrest or a near arrest. And you just need to get something in as quickly as possible. And then it's jamming a finger in for a finger thoracostomy and then throwing a chest tube in. And for everything else where you have a few minutes, I think we're going to be in the pigtail world. This is really interesting. So if you have a patient who is crashing their hypotensive from trauma, you are going to go with your finger and then a chest tube. Now, what size chest tube are you putting here? You're not using the 36 and 40 French size anymore. Or have you gone down in size? I think for pretty much anything in the game, the initial chest tube size should be like a 20 French. I think I'm fairly well supported that there is no reason to go any bigger than something like that. I mean, if you have it at 24, it's just fine too. But these are the diameters go up because it's a cylinder pretty dramatically as you go to the bigger sizes. So putting in a 36 French is much worse than putting in a 30. And, you know, so going down to these sizes really, really make the ease of procedure and the safety for the patient, I think, uh, much improved. And obviously the recovery as well, because recovering from the placement of a 20 French chest tube is a little bit different than a 40 French chest tube because of that size, the size of the incision that has to be made, the discomfort that the patient is in. So in the case where you have that crashing patient or the patient who's hypotensive with chest trauma, it's a finger, and then a 20 to 24 French chest tube is probably ideal. But there are cases where the patient's more stable, where you can go with a pigtail. You're going to want to do this in conjunction with your trauma team. And even the patient with the paranomonic effusion with that empyema, you can consider a pigtail placement. You can always switch that up to the larger size if it fails, but we can consider pigtail placement. We're going to probably want to talk to our intensivists, our pulmonary people, to find out what they are doing, but you know, come up with a plan together on that. Yeah, there, it's not a dichotomous decision either, Swami, because there's one more gray zone that we don't need to talk about now in any depth, but people should know they're out there. There are Seldinger chest tube kits out there that will allow you to put in a bigger tube, a 20 French, a 24 French, but still not need an incision, still be using the Seldinger technique and progressive dilation. So those exist and will absolutely take care of an empyema or a hemothorax. Excellent. And we do have some videos from Al Sacchetti on the steps in placing these. Like you said, essentially it's a Seldinger technique, although some of the kits also have 
the catheter that's loaded over a needle. And so both are going in at the same time. You kind of have to know what you have in your shop, get used to those kits, but check out Al's videos on how to place them with the Seldinger technique. And that brings us, Scott, to complications. We know, I think, what the complications are with chest tube placement, but because pigtail placement is a little bit new, it's a little different for us, we aren't as familiar with the complications there. So what are the complications that we have to be wary of and how can we reduce those complications? Okay, so your real issues beyond the chest tube ones, which you already mentioned, will be pretty much the same, which are infection, bleeding, you know, continuous pain, etc. And those all exist with the pigtails, though they're far less prevalent because they're smaller and it's not as gruesome a procedure to get them in. But the real issue I have with pigtails are whether or not you have a landing zone. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, since it's a essentially blind procedure in most cases, there is a way to do this under real-time ultrasound guidance, but most of the time it is a blind placement of the needle. You need, I think, a place to actually land that needle tip within the chest cavity. Now, that means if you have a big pneumothorax, then you have a landing zone. Once you pass the musculature and, and get through the membrane, the pleural membrane, there's a space, you know, at least a, a, a centimeter or two for that needle to live in that pleural cavity without touching anything. And that's a very safe placement. On the other hand, let's say you had an anterior pneumothorax, but you were leery of going anterior or it was really small or you had a pocket of fluid in a space that's not amenable to the normal spaces we had actually insert the pigtail, well, now you don't have a landing zone. There's lung touching, abutting the place where you would put that needle. Now, some people feel that's still safe. The needles are not incredibly sharp. The poke is unlikely to do any real damage as long as you stop as soon as you enter that chest cavity. I gotta say, I don't like it. I don't like that idea. If I can't find a spot that's amenable to placing the pigtail, then I'll do what's called a modified open pigtail placement in which I still make the incision as if it was a chest tube, but much smaller. I still get a finger in there. And then instead of using a needle, I'll either guide my dilator or wire or pigtail itself, depending on the kit, along my finger. And now I've placed a very small catheter in a semi-open fashion. And that's, I think, a way to ensure safety. If you don't have that landing zone, I'm not comfortable sticking a needle into it. And I think that's where a lot of the problems with pigtail placement come. It sounds as well that if you're doing this with ultrasound guidance, that's going to give you a lot of security as well. It's not that hard to do this with real-time ultrasound guidance, is it? Usually not necessary is what it comes down to. So I mean, here's what I'll say. Every patient should get an ultrasound because even if you have a CT scan, the position the patient's in when you actually do the procedure is not the position they were in when you were doing the CT scan. So they should all get an ultrasound. And what you should figure out with that ultrasound is, do I have a landing zone? Yes or no? And if the answer is yes, how deep is the space, is the distance to that landing zone? And then you estimate in your head, looking at the needle, something approximating that. And then, you know, you, sometimes your approximations are off. I mean, we're not magical with these measurements. So you go one or two extra centimeters. If you're going an extra 10 centimeters from that estimated distance, that's where all the problems start. On the other hand, if you do that ultrasound and there's no landing zone, then I don't bother. I just do it as a semi-open. Now, when I will use real-time guidance, because like I say, it's kind of a pain in the butt, it's usually unnecessary, is when I have a landing zone, but it's small. So you got a tiny stripe of fluid there, for instance. This happens very commonly with a, a pleural effusion that's not enormous, but you want to get a sample of it. And I just, I never do thoracentesis. I'll always just throw the pigtail in. I just think it's a smarter way to go. That's when I'll do real-time guidance. When I have a landing zone, but it's not huge, because I actually want to see that my needle tip is still in that small stripe of fluid. One minor point of clarification there, Scott said that 
in general, we are in the emergency department and in resuscitation settings doing a thoracentesis, both diagnostically as well as therapeutically, relieving that fluid is going to help the patient. And so in those cases, he is not bothering with just putting in a catheter, taking out fluid, and then removing the catheter, but is leaving that catheter in for continued drainage. If you are purely doing a diagnostic thoracentesis, there may still be a role for not leaving a catheter in place. All right, so you want to ultrasound the patient, see if you have a landing zone. If you don't have a clear landing zone, then you can consider that semi-open technique where you are actually putting a finger in so that you know exactly where you are going. You know you're not going to be jamming that needle into the lung tissue, so you're, you're reducing some of the quote-unquote blindness of the procedure here. And that kind of brings us, Scott, to the case that really led to this whole discussion. And I'm going to summarize the case really briefly because I think there's some interesting things in there for us to get into in terms of complications. So the short story is that they've got an elderly gentleman who has a fall and presents with a hemoneumothorax. It's clearly there on the FAST exam. They do get an x-ray to confirm. And when they place their pigtail catheter for drainage, they don't just get blood coming out of that pigtail catheter. They actually get pulsatile flow of blood coming out of that pigtail catheter obviously not what they were expecting. The patient ends up being transferred to a trauma center, has a complicated course, ultimately dies, and on the post-mortem, it's found that the pigtail catheter itself had penetrated the myocardium and the IVC, and that's where the issues really arose from. And so the listener wrote in and said, you know, these pigtails are being placed in this blind fashion. Knowing these pitfalls, should we still be using them? You know, first of all, kudos to this listener for having the wherewithal to want to understand what happened and you know to get past the, the self-blame and shame that must have ensued from this case. And uh, everyone makes mistakes. It happens to all of us. So you know that's a lot of courage right there. This is a tough situation because if you're in a space where you don't do these regularly, it can be a little bit daunting to do them perfectly. And if you fall back on, you're trained in chest tubes, you worked with chest tubes, and now you, know, you have this newfangled stuff maybe you haven't really got any experience with, a chest tube that's small might be safer. Now, I got to guess that either an ultrasound wasn't done, or if it was done, then the distance was not really thought as being something to take note of and match that to the needle, because this doesn't happen when you do that additional step. And the real you know, problem is these pigtail kits, oftentimes, if they're true Seldinger kits, will come with two needles. There'll be one that's like a reasonably sized central line looking needle. And then there'll be one that's a really crazy needle. Like you look at it and you're like, oh, no, no, no. And that's really for, you know, folks that have just a very high BMI. That's what you're going to take to actually get into the chest cavity. I never load that needle unless my ultrasound has told me I clearly need it. I'll, in fact, indent the skin with a learner, with the smaller needle, if I know it can make it, rather than giving them, because, you know, there's always that moment where the needle's in their hands, and I can't stop them if they get overzealous. That's how scared I am of that large needle. Now, a few of the kits only stock the large needle, because in the, in the thought process of we could save money, because it'll reach anywhere, right? It'll reach a, a two centimeter down uh, pleural fusion, it'll reach a 30 centimeter pleural fusion. That's where these issues happen. It's really tough to cause damage with the smaller needle size, and it's super easy if you're not watching assiduously how deep you are based on that ultrasound. Or I guess, you know, if you had nothing else and you're not good at ultrasound, you could look at the CT scan and decide, okay, here's the depth I'm not going to go past. I got to imagine that's what happened in this case. Now, oftentimes you get a skin plug 
and you'll keep pulling back and you'll never get back blood or air and you just keep going. And that's how cases like this occur. And, you know, it's unfortunately not uncommon. Now, how do you prevent it? Well, you know, the ultrasound technique I mentioned, or if you're just not familiar with pigtails, there is no shame in still putting in a small chest tube, or there is a middle ground for people that just are not going to get enough exposure time to really keep their skills competent in this. There are a couple of uh, commercial devices out there that are catheter over needle, and they're usually smaller. They're usually in the eight French range, which Again, it'll get you by for a transfer. Then they could put it in at the receiving shop, something bigger. So it's a French. But the difference is the needle's not a needle. It's a needle with a spring-loaded obturator that totally blunts out the needle. It fills the needle's hole with a blunt piece of metal on a spring based on the loss of pressure. So, you know, while going through skin or muscle, it stays as a needle. As soon as it enters a cavity, as soon as it enters any free space, whether it's in the abdomen for paracentesis or the chest, for a pigtail placement or a thoracentesis or what have you, it pops out that metal piece automatically. It's almost impossible to cause damage to any of the soft tissue structures with these devices. And I would say if I was a place where they're doing one of these a year, I'd probably stock one of those in chest tubes and not the formal pigtail sets. Yeah, so basically when you enter the cavity, it's almost like a little guard that makes the leading edge of that blunt. So you're not gonna be poking into anything the one place that I've had a problem with those is actually just getting through the skin. Sometimes you have to make a little bit of a skin nick with your, with your knife just to make sure that you can actually penetrate the skin. But you're right. They do give that extra luxury of protection once you are in the cavity, which does make you feel a little bit more secure. It's great in learners' hands as well. It gives me a lot of security when my learner is using that device. So it's definitely something to look into. I remember looking into this, Scott. I don't think that they are markedly more expensive than the other kits. Oh, well, a pigtail kit with all its crap is going to be more expensive than that one catheter. So you'll save money too. And if it's just like you need to transfer someone with a tension pneumothorax and you're like, oh God, I don't want to place a chest tube in this, that'll get you through. Now, I'd be a little more leery if it was a hemo pneumothorax. I'm putting something that small in for a transfer. I don't want it to get clogged with blood. I might just put a chest tube in in that sense. But, you know, getting the task specific knowledge for pigtails, it's not that hard. I think where the problems start is we don't teach procedures with the idea of here's how to do it and then here's how to do it to prevent complications. Like someone will teach you how to do a pigtail, but they won't tell you, okay, here's how you're going to screw this up. This is the main spot that people cause problems and complications during this procedure. And for the pigtail, if I was teaching it, I always tell them it's during needle insertion, your mode, your, your mental model is I'm going to keep inserting as I pull back on the syringe until I get something back. Well, that's a failed model. It's I'm going to keep inserting until the depth I've already measured is safe until I get something back or go two centimeters beyond that. And if I reach that stop point, I'm going to pull out and figure out what the hell's going on. And people don't teach it that way. And that's why, unfortunately, things like this happen. That's almost a bigger topic for us to get into, Scott, is how we teach these procedures. But for all of the learners out there, when you're learning a new procedure, ask the person teaching you, what are the big places where I'm going to run into trouble? And for all of the teachers out there, make sure that you are teaching people, this is the place where you're going to run into trouble so that you know that going into it, you're going to learn it that much better. And Scott, this is probably a place for us to also add on MRAP when we're teaching procedures. What are those big pitfalls? Where are the places where you can really mess this up so that people have that knowledge before they go into the procedure? Absolutely right. Scott, anything else that you want to touch on with pigtails before we wrap up? Just that if you can learn these, it is worth it for your patient. Now, 
you know, your patients don't want major complications. So if you're going to do one a year, maybe stick with what you know. But it is worth adding to your armamentarium if you have even, you know, five or six of these cases where it might be helpful each month because it's just so much more comfortable for the patients. You could just use some local as opposed to what I do from a humane stance for most of my chest tubes, which is I'll use procedural sedation a lot of the time because it's just such a miserable experience for the patient. Summary. Scott, I think this gives us a bit of a primer on pigtail catheters, what they are, where they can be used, and the fact that we are expanding where they can be used each year as more data emerges. We're going to be pushing that envelope. It's going to be really important for all emergency clinicians to make sure that they are trained on how to do these because of the advantages that you mentioned. The fact that it is a shorter recovery, it is less painful for the patient, and it can most of the time achieve the same things that that chest tube achieves. But if your skill set doesn't include pigtail catheter placement, it's okay to go with a smaller French chest tube for that drainage to keep in that safe zone for you and for your patient. But again, this is a good procedure to learn. Add to your armamentarium. Check out the videos from Al on how to place these and then try to get some hands-on experience with whoever in the hospital is doing these procedures so you can add it to what you can do and what you can provide to your patient. Can I wear my pigtail catheter to school? Absolutely. Use you? Do I make you laugh? What's so amusing about me, huh? What? That's right, our very own Italian stallion and his community medicine rants, Dr. Dr. Al, Al Sacchetti. Sacchetti. One of the driving themes behind MRAP has always been that what you do matters, and that's absolutely true. But something else to keep in mind is that what you say matters. Remember that despite the negative press that medicine gets these days, you're still a highly respected professional in the community, and most people you talk to will take what you say to heart. Where this becomes important is not just with the medical conversations you have with your patients and their families, but with the other aspects of your conversations. And this is something I stress with with the residents and any of our young medical staff as well. Probably the best example of this is how you deal with a young parent with a small infant. After the medical portion of the exam is done, I always make it a point to pick the child up and hold them while I talk to the parent or the family members. And a lot of times, if it's a, it's a very young parent, they'll have a, a mother or a grandmother there with them. It makes the conversation much more personal than just leaving the kid laying on the stretcher while you're talking to them. At any rate, after I go over all the, the medical stuff, I always make it a point to compliment the parent. Usually it's, it's the mother on how well cared for the child is. I explain that they're doing a wonderful job. I wish everyone did such a wonderful job. And it's really important if you can do this in front of other members of the household because it's common for these young parents to receive a lot of criticism that they're not doing things right, they don't know what they're doing. And for you as a professional to say to them in front of their critics that they are an exceptional parent. And I think this is something that we don't appreciate we have the ability to do. We can always take care of the medical aspects of it, but taking care of the other aspects of it, we're not going to be able to go to the house and babysit for the kid, but we are certainly going to be able to elevate their status in the eyes of the people who matter the most to them. And it's not infrequently you do this, you make that complimentary comment, and you see the demeanor of the parent change immediately. They stand a little straighter. They have a little bit more confidence in what they're doing. And overall, they feel much more comfortable that they're going to be able to raise this child. And it's not just parents of of children. It's all the other patients that you interact with. I usually try to 
have some type of a very brief non-medical conversation with the patients whenever possible. I work in an urban department with an extremely affable population that lends itself well to casual conversations. So for example, if I'm dealing with an elderly couple, I'll frequently ask the man if they um, ever had any heart problems before they got married, which opens up the conversation for the wife to make her own smart-ass comment back to me. Or if I comment to a patient about the rather unique color of their hair, it allows the nurse to chime in and explain to them that I have the fashion sense of Oscar the Grouch. But the important thing is not what you say, it's the fact that you've now interacted with them as a person, not just as a patient. And I think that makes all the difference in the world to people. This really important person interacted with them the same as their friends interact with them, which elevated them to the level of this really important person. Now, obviously, you better be able to read the room before you start these conversations. If you're dealing with someone who already believes themselves better than you, and the first question is, where's their private doctor? That's probably not the person you want to tell that their hairpiece looks like a roadkill. Actually, one of our docs did tell a patient that, and she thought that was the greatest thing ever and told all her friends about it. Actually, her hairpiece did look like roadkill, but that's another story. But I think that the take-home of all this is to just remember that your words have a lot of power in the way people see themselves. And when you interact with them for that 20 seconds or so outside of the medical realm, you're just confirming what Mel's always said, that what you do matters. All right, talk to you guys later. From the syphilis capital of the world, ladies and gentlemen, it is Cardiology Corner. With your host, Dr. Amol Matu. Amol, you and I did an SVT update in November 2021 covering medication options, some of the doses, some of the pitfalls associated with that diagnosis. One thing, though, that we didn't discuss were labs, and specifically troponins. In fact, it's all the way back in November 2011 when you and Mel chatted about this topic, troponin specifically in SVT. But troponin use continues to come up even to the point where you put together a little Twitter poll asking that question. Gosh, I can't believe it's been since 2011. That's incredible. And really nothing has changed much except for the fact that it's become an even bigger pet peeve of mine than it it was back then. So, and the backstory behind this Twitter poll is I had a a 45-year-old guy who has signed out to me, and this is not the first time it's happened, but 45-year-old who came in with an SVT, just a run-of-the-mill SVT. He was complaining of some palpitations, but blood pressure's okay, his lungs are clear, everything else looks good. And he had a narrow, complex tachycardia rate 160. You know, it's plain old SVT. And he ended up getting some vagal maneuvers, which didn't work. So then he got adenosine converted perfectly. And afterwards, he's asymptomatic. And at that point, the case was signed out to me as Amal. We just converted this SVT. He's doing great. Labs are pending. After the labs come back, if they're okay, just go ahead and discharge him. And that was a sign out. And in my mind, I didn't want to say it out loud, but in my mind, I'm thinking, well, why were labs sent? This guy is totally asymptomatic. It just got me wondering how commonly are labs sent on patients with a run-of-the-mill SVT who convert? So I posted this Twitter poll. I was very proud that I I figured out how to do a Twitter (laughs) poll, first of all. And I just sent out this 
poll that said if you have a 45-year-old palpitations, a bit anxious, blood pressure's okay, he gets an AV nodal blocker, he converts, now he's totally asymptomatic, do you and or your colleagues routinely send a troponin and or order labs? And I said, there's no perfect answer, I'm just asking. And then there's four choices, either no labs, I'm done, he's converted, he's going home now with follow-up, or do you send routine electrolytes, and if those are okay, then you send him home? Do you send lights plus a troponin routinely and then send him home? Or do you only send a troponin if he has a history of cardiac disease? And about 41% of the time, people said that they send electrolytes, and about a third, 33% of the time, they said they send electrolytes and they send troponins. And it caught me off guard just how often troponins and other labs end up being sent on the patient. So that's what kind of prompted this review of the, a recurrent review of the literature and, and also me contacting you as always just to vent about my pet peeves. <laughs> and honestly, I think that that 33% number is probably a vast underestimate of how many people are sending a troponin because you see a Twitter poll from someone like you and you're almost, I don't want to answer that I send that troponin because I know that I shouldn't be sending it. And you actually sent me a review article, which speaks to exactly that. About 80% of patients presenting to the ED with SVT had a troponin sent, and 30% of those troponins were elevated. Clearly, this is a huge issue. It's a far bigger issue than what that Twitter poll tells us. And I think really what we have to come back to is what we know about SVT and acute coronary occlusion MI, and if there's any relationship between that dysrhythmia and acute MI. Right. That is the real question. And there's literature going back many years which has very clearly said that SVTs are not the manifestation of acute MIs. Now, nothing's 100% or 0% in medicine, but the question really is, if a patient comes in with an SVT and just has palpitations but no other major concerns, and then they convert, and then they're doing fine, is it possible that they actually had an acute coronary occlusion and that caused the SVT? And so, you know what, I better send troponins so I pick up the coronary occlusion. And the answer is that it is extremely, extremely rare, approaching zero. In fact, I've never heard of the case where the patient ended up having an acute coronary occlusion, but I don't want to say that it's zero, but I, I would say it really approaches zero. And then I think we have to turn this around and say, if we're recommending not to get troponin testing on patients with SVT under most circumstances, what are the circumstances where we should get a troponin? Let's say that we have a patient who comes in with SVT you look at that ECG and they've got diffuse ST depressions. It's a pretty common scenario. Should that prompt us to get a troponin? Really important point. During SVT, it is completely normal for the patient to show diffuse ST depressions and even ST elevation in AVR. It's totally normal. You don't need to worry about it. This is not equivalent to a positive stress test. And I've heard people say that before. Well, if they have an SVT with ST changes, that's like a positive stress test. No, no, no. It's not a positive stress test. There's electrophysiologic changes that occur during the SVT, which simply produce these ST segment changes, and they do not correlate with positive stress tests. They don't correlate with positive cardiac catheterizations. So you should expect to see ST changes and ST elevation in AVR in many cases of SVT. It only matters if after you convert the patient back to sinus rhythm, if, you know, you repeat the EKG 15, 20 minutes later and the patient's had a chance to settle, if there are still ST segment concerns along with concerning symptoms, then you go ahead and work them up. 
But during the SVT, absolutely expect to see those ST segment depressions and elevation in AVR. Going back to the article that you sent me, and of course we will drop that article in the show notes, they show that 30% of troponins were positive. Doesn't that mean that we're picking up MIs that we otherwise would have missed by getting that troponin? The positivity of the troponin is really due to nothing more than simply the tachycardia. You end up developing an oxygen supply versus oxygen demand mismatch. It would be analogous to testing troponins on people that are finishing a 5K or a 10K or, or any other type of vigorous exercise. When you make somebody tachycardic like that, you oftentimes will bump their troponin. And it doesn't mean that they have a coronary occlusion at all. So if you see this elevated troponin, let's say that you sent it or it was sent from triage or your colleague sent it, you shouldn't equate that bump in troponin to an acute coronary occlusion MI. Really what you have to look at is the patient's symptoms, what the EKG looks like after they have converted, as you mentioned. But I think one of the things that people are going to ask too is, what's the real downside? We get the troponin, it's elevated. Okay, so I'm going to do another troponin in a couple of hours, or, or maybe even I'm going to get a little bit of testing, other testing on the patient. Is there really that big of a downside to getting that troponin? I guess you could extend that argument and say, well, what's the downside of just checking troponins on every patient that shows up with an ankle sprain? What's the downside of checking PSAs and serum porcelain levels on everyone who shows up? Maybe you're going to pick up porcelain toxicity. Who knows? You know, you have to think about the pretest probability before you order tests. Otherwise, you're going to get a lot of false positives, which leads to unnecessary workups. You also need to think about the differential for the test you're sending. There's about 20 different things that cause a bump in troponin that are not related to acute coronary occlusion. And a bunch of those don't need an emergent workup. And going back to the case that I started with, this 45-year-old guy signed out to me, well, the troponin came back at 1.7, normal in our lab being less than 0.04. So, you know, I'm thinking, oh gosh, this is probably a nothing bump in troponin. But, you know, there's a bump in troponin, so I'm going to repeat it. So I get a repeat, and now it's 3.1. So it's slowly rising. And, you know, I'm, I'm a wimp. If I see a troponin like that, I, I feel obligated. I've got to admit them. So they get obsed. And the hospitalist consulted cardiology. Cardiology sees this guy and sent him for a stress test. Stress test was positive. So maybe this is a great save. So at that point, the patient ends up being sent for a cath. And the cath is completely normal. Meaning it was a false positive stress test. And digressing for a second, we know that when you do stress tests on low-risk patients, you're more likely to have a false positive than a true positive. So this patient got admitted unnecessarily, got a stress test unnecessarily, got a cath unnecessarily, and was subject to all of the potential harms of a cath. He could have had a coronary dissection. Who knows? He could have had a retroperitoneal bleed. He could have had a false positive cath, for all we know. Anyway, his troponin peaked right around that second level that I mentioned. He ended up with a three-day hospitalization bill a stress test bill, a cath bill. So you talk about what the harms of, you know, why not just send troponins in everyone? The cost-benefit analysis does not favor just ordering tests on people that where it's not indicated. There's a tremendous financial cost. You're using up hospital beds. You're using up resources. You're subjecting patients to possible harms. And it just doesn't make any sense just because you didn't think through the pretest probability and also the differential of the testing that you're ordering. And I think that's really the information that you've given us is to figure out what is that pretest probability. In the absence of symptoms, SVT by itself is a very rare presentation of acute MI. 
And so our pretest probability should be very low and shouldn't prompt us to get troponin testing in most patients. I should also mention that about a third of the time when you order troponins on SVT patients, it ends up being positive. And multiple studies have shown that positive troponins in SVTs are not correlated with adverse events at 30 days. They are associated with increased hospital costs, increased stress tests, increased invasive testing, but not associated with an improvement in outcomes at 30 days. So that also contributes to why we don't want to be sending these unnecessary tests. But Amal, let's just wrap this all together. When should we be prompted to get troponin testing in a patient who presents with SVT? Well, what you do based on the literature is when you see the patient, you convert them. Vagal, adenosine, calcium channel blocker, beta blocker, whatever you want to do, you convert them back to sinus rhythm. And then, you know, you let them chill for 10, 15 minutes or so. You get a new EKG and you scrutinize the new EKG and you do a new history and physical exam after they've converted. If they are pretty much asymptomatic or have totally non-concerning symptoms after they've converted and the EKG is not concerning, you're done. The only people in whom I would work up after converting them from SVT is if I repeat that history of physical now that they're in science rhythm and they are still having concerning chest pressure or diaphoresis or vomiting or shortness of breath or their EKG is showing persistent concerning ST changes 15, 20 minutes later. Those are the patients I'm working up. So the bottom line is when the patient shows up with the SVT, convert them, and then you repeat the history and physical and the EKG. And that history, physical, and EKG is what you base your workup decisions on. And in fact, this doesn't even apply just to troponins, but the literature suggests that this also applies to other tests. Once you repeat the history, physical, EKG, do you need to routinely get CBCs on these patients? Well, if your history says that they haven't been having GI bleeding or heavy vaginal bleeding, you don't need a routine CBC. And God forbid we start talking about the white count, right? Uh, <laughs> electrolytes. Who do you need electrolytes in? Well, if they haven't been having nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, they don't look dehydrated, they're not on diuretics, the utility of routinely checking lights approaches zero. Even thyroid tests, thyroid function tests, if the patient hasn't been having hot or cold intolerance or significant weight changes or hyperdefecation or, or a tender enlarged thyroid, do you routinely need to send thyroid studies? The utility approach is zero. So the bottom line is you can use this really old-fashioned technique called history and physical and repeat the EKG after they've converted. And that is what you base your workup on. I could not have done a better summary than you just did, Amol. This is really much more of a simple approach to taking care of these patients with SVT in terms of what tests you have to get. In general, you should default to, I don't need any tests but let me go back and examine the patient and see if I can convince myself that I need a specific test on this patient in front of me. But most of the time, you're not going to need anything at all except for that history and physical. Amal, thanks so much for clearing this up. We are going to drop some links to some references that we use to put this together, as well as the audio. And I implore you all, go back and listen to that 2011 audio back in November with Mel and Amal talking about troponins and SVT. I will tell you that Amal was angry then, and he's still angry now. <laughs> but I will tell you that when you listen to me back in 2011, I sounded a lot taller and I sounded like <laughs> I've got more hair. I had a full head of it's hair back true. then. It's true. It's very true. You and Mel both with the full head of hair sounding on that <laughs> audio. All right. Thanks, Amal. Thanks so much. We'll uh, see you next time. All right. Take care, Swami. Hi, I'm Dr. Ryan Knight. I'm a emergency physician for the United States Army, currently stationed in Fort Benning, Georgia. 
You may recall that Dr. Knight was recently on MRAP to discuss a very incredible case that involved a couple of medics. We want to welcome him back today to discuss the use of whole blood products, but I understand there is an important proviso. Yes, these are just my views, and these are things that I've learned along the way, but do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States Army or the DOD or any other government agency. Right, off you go! So I want to ask you, Ryan, why is it that it's so important for us to get as close to whole blood as possible in trauma scenarios? I guess it's simply put that trauma patients are bleeding whole blood, and the best thing we can do is replace that and not with some other substitute, such as a crystalloid, colloid, or even our blood products themselves in fractionated forms have a fluid injury that's associated with them. First and foremost, just in case anyone out there is thinking that the uh, issue with your trauma patient is uh, that they need more saline, it is not. Definitively, never ever, it's awful, 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 and your, your patient does not have a saltwater deficiency 99.9% of the time in a, in a trauma situation. If they were suffering from cholera and then someone came along and shot them, well, first of all, that's kind of a jerk move because they already had cholera. They, they may wish to die, but you shouldn't expedite that. But outside of very weird scenarios where they actually had volume losses, if at all possible, you'd rather get the red stuff into them instead of the clear stuff. Yeah, that's right. But unfortunately, you know, our systems generally fight that and it's not their fault. It's just that we're set up and some of the logistical challenges can get in our way as we're trying to provide the best medicine for our patients. And so overcoming some of the system problems can sometimes be the trick to do the best thing for your patient. So one of the biggest hurdles a lot of people encounter is how long it takes to thaw out FFP. Yeah. So I think they tell you in the book, it takes about 20 minutes to thaw FFP, but I think most people will experience it in reality is probably closer to 40 minutes because also the blood bank isn't necessarily sitting in our resuscitation bay. And so between the communication piece, the runners, actually getting it thawed and making sure it's the right stuff, there's usually a huge delay in getting FFP up and ready that your patient can receive. What about platelets, the other major component in that one-to-one resuscitation we often talk about? A lot of times the platelets seem to be an afterthought, unless it's built into the system itself. And I personally haven't experienced much of a delay. I don't know about you, but it's more or less that I don't think we think about it as readily as the other two products. And sometimes that can even just catch up on us. A lot of trauma systems actually have it set up that that the PRBCs and FFP are to be administered early, and they really only trigger that platelets later, which is fine if you worked in like a magical perfect system that would immediately give you those platelets, but there is almost inevitably at least a little bit of friction where that gets delayed. And so that's how you end up with these scenarios where people are getting, you know, six or seven units of PRBCs and the platelets have not been started. What are some issues that happens in the real world when we know that we want one-to-one-to-one, but we're not actually getting there? What, what are some, some frictions, some systems issues that are happening? I think the first one is that our emergency release or in our resuscitation bays themselves, if we're holding blood products, it's almost always two, maybe three units of PRBCs only. And that's what's sitting there first. The second one is that hesitancy to transfuse, and the patient may come in with saline or another clear fluid already hanging, or as soon as an IV goes in, somebody starts hanging a clear bag of fluid, and as soon as they see a blood pressure that's low, they're squeezing it really hard, and they're trying to help their patient. They're trying to get that blood pressure up, but it's not there. 
and we know we need to match that one to one, but the other one, the plasma, isn't necessarily sitting right there with us ready to transfuse. And, and that can often be one of the biggest problems. So would you suggest that instead of us always starting with red, that we might ought to consider starting with white? Yes, this is actually one of the lessons I learned from some of my anesthesia colleagues. In my military experience, I, I got to serve on some small unit surgical teams. And so you're working hand in hand with a trauma surgeon, and you're working hand in hand with anesthesia. And this is a trick from them that I learned is that with these sick trauma patients, when they come in, I'm taking my Y tubing now and I spike the plasma on one side and I spike the PRBCs on the other. And then I'm not using a clear fluid to prep my line. I just prep my line directly with the plasma. And now I have just red and white sitting on my white tubing. And as soon as I know that my patient needs something, the first thing that I call for is that plasma. And I, I open up the plasma first and resuscitate that first. Because what, what we've really shown is that when you start with plasma, you'll have a closer match to the one-to-one-to-one. -to -one -to -one. And so while the studies may say that the outcomes are better starting with plasma first, it's likely just because you actually match the one-to-one -one transfusion like you're supposed to. Oh, this is so clever, yet so simple. So instead of us flushing it with the crystalloid, you're suggesting that we actually flush the tubing with that plasma and then have the PRBCs run in behind it. Exactly. And then as soon as I'm finished with the plasma, I clamp off my plasma line. I turn on my blood line. I let that run in. Meantime, I'm switching out the plasma for a new bag of plasma if needed. So we continue to do that until the filter is clogged up or spent a couple of units and you know you just need to change it anyway. Perfect. And with these different fluids going in kind of simultaneously, how do you keep track of all this? There was, in fact, it was January of 2021, the trauma podcast, and I forget who gave it on EMRAP. Ryan is referring to the Recess Done Right segment in January 2022 with Andrew Petrosoniak. We will drop a link in the show notes to check that segment out. But it was absolutely fantastic in the conversation of prepping your team. And so I think the best thing to do is prep somebody in before this thing even starts. And you say, what I need you to do is I need you to write it. And hopefully you have a whiteboard in the room or if the room has, has a glass door and you can just write on the glass door with a dry erase marker. You line up PRBCs, platelets, and plasma, and just put a tick mark every time one goes in because it's impossible to ignore your failures when it's just staring you in, in the face of, is your resuscitation one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one, or are you getting off and continuing to push PRBCs every time they drop their pressure? And one of the things this reminds me of is kind of like having the code nurse during a code blue, whereas physicians, we often forget about things like pulse checks and when's the next dose of epidu and things like that because we're, you know, ultrasounding or, or doing something else. We're trying to intubate, secure the airway. It's very easy to get distracted. So in much the same way that it's really smart to have that code nurse that calls out and reminds you that we're due for a pulse check or that we're, we're due for the next dose of epi, you know, having someone that's going to keep you honest the whole time with that one-to-one-to-one seems really useful while you do all the other things that you might need to do on this trauma patient. I know that if you look at your team and you say, I'm going to start with plasma first. If they drop their pressure, if I call for blood products, the first thing I want to go into the patient is plasma. It's going to be different and people are going to question it. If you have that conversation ahead of time and you prep the team, now as soon as you call for blood products, they know exactly what you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it. 
and somebody's keeping you honest with it so you can offload that task and get rid of that that cognitive function and, and give that to somebody else and concentrate on the the other task like you mentioned the airway or something else that's that you need to intervene upon that's great that zero point survey or whatever you'd like to call it about how to prep your team before the patient gets there is so crucial for that when you're doing something different otherwise there'll be a pause where, you know, when you're asking for that, they'll be like, wait, you want me to prep the line with what? And this could have all been addressed before the patient even arrived if you have the luxury of knowing that the patient is incoming. Dan is referring back to the zero point survey segment that we did with Cliff Reed way back in April 2020. Another great segment. Definitely check that one out. I know that one of your passions is the actual use of whole blood instead of us kind of recombining the individual elements. Is it, you know, something that is, is possible to do in the civilian environment to actually use whole blood instead of cobbling together a whole blood proxy with the individual components? This is something I run into all the time. Whole blood, universal donor uh, or universal O low type is an FDA approved product and it is being used in a number of trauma systems across the United States. And I think it's really important to actually work to fix the system because we know that it is what works best for our patients. But a lot of times there's hurdles in the way of that. And while you bring up one of them is the logistics, it also turns out that fractionating blood makes more money for the blood banks. And so there's some hurdles there to get over as well. And when I teach about this, Dan, I actually bring up another valid point or another great point that I think is valid for almost all physicians and, and anyone in medicine. And that's to learn to read the literature critically. Because when you look and see why we started fractionating blood and we look and see why we started giving a one-to-one instead of using whole blood, it, it came about in the 1960s where up until that point, in all our combat scenarios, we've been using whole blood, O-type universal donor. But in the 60s, there was a number of publications from the exact same people. And if you look at the titles, it's all written by the same authors. And they're publishing the same stuff with different titles over and over again that said that what we need are salt-containing solutions in trauma and that we don't need blood first. And I think there's a need to read the literature critically. There's a need to praise it and see if that applies to your patient. But also, we need to go back and we need to fix our systems. We need to fix our trauma systems so that we can carry whole blood. And the place to keep it is actually probably in the resuscitation bay itself. Fixing the system, it is an approved product. You can use it, you can transfuse it, and it is what's best for your patient because when they're acutely bleeding, they need whole blood. So I'm going to take that as a personal challenge to reach out to my ED director to ask, you know, what we can do to try to get that low titer O blood into my trauma bay as well, because I agree with you. This is the logical path to it. And it makes a lot of those headaches that we talk about of the logistics of getting one to one to one just go away because you are giving a single product in a very simple way, exactly what the patient needs. It's important to note here that while physiologically it does make sense that whole blood would be superior to component therapy, we don't have a ton of evidence that proves that that is true. That data is starting to emerge now. The research is growing rapidly in this area. And I think in the next couple of years, we're going to see more of that data. And of course, when that data is available, we will review it here on MRAP and on EMA to make sure that everybody's up to speed on what is the best recommendation. Summary. To summarize, we need to make sure that we logistically plan these events out ahead by letting our team know that we would like to first load our lines with the plasma and then chase that with the PRBCs. 
We're going to get the blood bank involved early and then make sure that we empower a member of our team, such as a nurse or tech, that's going to keep track of the blood products that we're giving and making sure that we approach that one-to-one-to-one ratio as close as possible. We're going to advocate within our systems to make sure that we're actually getting that O blood with low titers uh, available for the trauma bay. And then last but not least, go out and give some blood. It'll remind you that you need to use it. And it will also make you feel a little bit better that you're not depleting the supply. One last thing uh, before we go, we'd like to invite MRAP listeners to consider a donation to the Lead the Way Foundation. We do appreciate the uh, MRAP listeners that have already made donations to that. In lieu of any funds for, for actually producing this piece, we're actually asking the MRAP folks to make a donation to Lead the Way Foundation. And I'd invite you to join them if you are so able to. Kids may not be small adults, but many pediatricians are. Ladies and gentlemen, the not-so-short Dr. Eileen Claudius with some pediatric pearls. I'm here today with Chris Lemon. He is an emergency physician at the University of Maryland, Baltimore, Washington Medical Center. Make some lemonade with Dr. Christopher Lemon. He is also a guru for using apps and technology to improve pediatric emergency medicine patient care and improve our efficiency, which I'm hoping he's doing in his daily life as well, because he also has four kids under the age of four, right? One turned five. Oh, (laughs) Not that that's helping us that much quite yet, but yeah. (laughs) He also has four kids under the age of six. I have to start with one question, which is kind of embarrassing. My residents tell me all the time, oh, don't worry, I got it. I looked it up on PDSTAT. I feel like I should know what that is because everyone else is using it. I don't actually know what the app PDSTAT does, what to use it for. Can you go over that? Because I think that's a big one that a lot of people know, and I don't. I would be happy to go through it. I think you're going to impress everyone with your knowledge of this app after we talk about it a little. I consider this to be the holy grail of PEDS emergency med apps. This is a great rapid reference. So they claim that this is a good tool for any providers, and that includes nurses, techs, whatnot, working with pediatric patients in an emergency or critical care environment. Specifically, I'm calling it the holy grail of apps and not the holy book. This is not meant to be an exhaustive reference tool. This is a quick reference for those situations where seconds can matter. So essentially how this works is when you open the app, it will allow you to rapidly pick one of several ways to get the reference information you want. It'll allow you to select the patient's age, their weight, length, or you can just use the tried and true Braslow color guide to get quick reference information. So once you enter any of these four areas, it will give you right-sized reference for a set of categories. And examples of those would include things like airway intervention, cardiac resuscitation, pain management, or even things like what are normal vital signs for a kid this size. And for an even deeper dive, for example, if I were to click airway intervention and get right-sized information, it runs me through a series of all the equipment I need from tubes glide scope blades, as well as medications, not only for RSI, but also maintenance of sedation, and even the ventilator settings after it's over. And the great part about this when you say all your residents have it is, even when I was a resident, I could afford this. It's about $5, and that's money well spent for something this good. 
It's on the Apple App Store as well as Google Play. And I'll point out I was surprised. Every time I log in to check for updates, I see that on the Apple App Store, this app is usually near the top of all medical apps. As of the time we're recording this today, I think it's number 13. So I should probably say that you're not making any money off of these apps, I would assume. It sounds like it's only $5. Probably no one's making that much money, but you're not making any money. You have no disclosures, right? Correct. In this case, no. I'm happy to have some if anyone wants to reach out, but all joking aside, no, I'm not making any money for this. This is what I have paid for myself, and this is what I choose to use every day in practice. So it kind of sounds like PDSTAT is like having the Braslow tape in the palm of your hand without having a possibly bloody and uncooperative patient laying on it. And you can use it sort of in advance of the patient getting there if you have an age. You can use it if you don't have a length-based tape, and it gives you some additional information like post-intubation sedation. That's the beauty of this is it's one of those things where if you have it set and ready to go, you're being pushed to think about things, for example, like that maintenance sedation after an intubation before the patient even gets there. So you look like you have all your ducks lined up in a row as a result of this app giving you very specific markers for how to get through the situation. Now, I know this is somewhat unrealistic, but let's say you were stranded on a desert island with absolutely no resources other than a fully stocked pediatric emergency department, tons of pediatric patients, and your cell phone, and you could take only five apps with you. What would be your top five? And tell me why, what you love about them, and some tricks to using them. Sure. So this sounds like the uh, vacation from hell in terms of that desert island. One, PD stat. I would say the first and foremost we just covered was PD stat because it's cheap, it's rapid access, and it's the most critical information you're going to need, which is always, again, where seconds count. But to move into some others. Two, easy TBSA. I would say another app that I use actually fairly commonly is the easy TBSA app, so standing for Total Body Surface Area. So if you haven't guessed already, this is an app about burns. This is a free app that came out of a partnership between the Division of Trauma and Burns and the Sheikh Zayed Institute at Children's National Hospital. So this is a fairly new app, and what's great about it is it takes all the guesswork out of calculating total body surface area for burns. I know we've all learned several different techniques for this, the palms, the rule of nines, And again, when you're sitting there trying to scratch and scribble things into a chart that you printed off of Google Images, the nice part about this is you you input the age and weight of the patient, and you use your finger to shade a multitude of different maps for the body with where the at least partial or full thickness burns are. And you hit go, and the app spits back to you the percentage area, remembering that, again, it already took into account the age and weight of the patient. And then it can also be emailed if you want to send that map to either yourself for the chart or anyone else you may be consulting with on the phone. I love that because when you're giving a lecture, telling people to look up the Lund-Brower chart for a small child or telling them that the palm of the hand plus the fingers is about 1% body surface area in a pediatric patient, it sounds great. When you have an actual screaming patient in front of you with a hysterical parent whose skin is peeling off, taking their little writhing hand and trying to straighten it out and figure how many hands of body surface area is burned and is it more than 10, less than 10, especially if the hand is one of the things that's burned, 
it's not quite as easy as it is in a simulation situation. Totally agree. That is the point is when their stress level goes up, your stress level goes up. The easier technology can make things for your practice, the better it is. Three, sublocks. Number three is something that I think is good for me because it's focusing on something I don't feel particularly strong in, and that's reading my own plane films. So there's an app out there called Sublux, S-U-B-L-U-X. This is also a free app, which is a great educational reference tool. They self-describe as a radiology app for the rest of us, meaning that this is not specifically for radiologists, but it's for everyone else who still needs to know how to read an x-ray. If you're like me and you find that you're reading your own plane films routinely, especially at night, this is a great stepwise approach to make you get sharper and better at reading your own films accurately. The way this works is it takes an intuitive stepwise approach and it uses anatomy overlays on the x-rays to make things more easily identifiable. So, for instance, I may pull open the wrist section of the app if I'm reading a wrist x-ray. As I scroll through the wrist films on the app, it's giving me the same standard views I'm going to see on the films in front of me, and it gives me a checklist of potential pathology as I go through. The flip side is, I've also used this app when I have a radiologist read a film for me, and they give me the description of some sort of fracture, and I look on the app and go in reverse to try to make more sense of why the radiologist thought that this was a problem. So let me translate. You go somewhere and you hide, and then you pull up this app, so when the (laughs) residents start asking you questions like, where exactly is the clivus? You can sound really smart and say, oh yeah, it's right here. I get that all the time. Yep, exactly. I just say, I think there's an airway that needs me. I'll be right back in five minutes and then (laughs) randomly pop up again. So one of the things I find really interesting about this is you can actually toggle between normal and abnormal with annotations on there. So it makes the pathology really obvious. And in that case, I find that to be the most unique thing because I spend so much time sitting there looking to say, I think I see where that fracture line is or where there's too much separation. And this makes it very clear. It also gives you a few reference tools, like back to basics, in terms of suggesting this app to maybe med students or residents you're working with, if you want to give them that tip that this is how you know what you do, because it will take you back to how to describe fractures, fragment positioning, all the way down to details like what is the normal scaphalunate distance, which is, again, less than two millimeters. Unless it's like a one-year-old, in which case you take a wrist x-ray and there's nothing there. True. And I will admit, this app does not cover everything to that much detail. But yes, in general, it gives you the basics. Can you do different ages? I mean, all joking aside, could I look at the elbow of a five-year-old on this app versus the elbow of an adult? That's an interesting question. So it doesn't let you toggle between ages that I've seen, but it does give you some more pediatric fracture patterns on there, like a supracondylar fracture. So back to our countdown list. Four, Visual DX. If you do have some money to burn on an app, and you may find that you can use your CME funds for this, one of the ones I'd recommend is something called Visual DX. Visual DX has been around for several years at this point, but it's something that's really evolved into a pretty incredible tool recently. When I was in residency several years ago, we were introduced to this app when it was in one of its earlier stages. Having recently gotten back into it again in the last couple of years, I'm very amazed with how much it's changed. The idea of Visual DX is that it's a customizable differential builder. And while you may be thinking, well, that was the whole point of going to med school, 
The nice part about this is it does it in a way that's going to give you a lot of good information for the patient, which I think is important. When you go into the app, you can select the body system or symptoms and then input the demographics for the patient, be it age, gender, or any other associated symptoms, timeline. It will basically pull as much information as you're willing to give it, but it also doesn't force you to fill in everything. After doing that, it'll crank out a very extensive differential diagnosis in order of what is most likely. So a lot of what people use this for is dermatologic reference because rashes can be so tricky and you may miss something very important if you're not thinking about it. So inputting the rash with its demographics and then looking at the list will at least be a good refresher of what you should be trying to think of in terms of pitfalls. And if you don't, it even has sections within the reference to tell you what the pitfalls are. It links this to a very exhaustive set of media, including pictures for all of these different conditions. And one of the things I think is so important about this app is it does a pretty darn good job of looking at what pathology looks like on different skin tones. I think that's something that going forward we need to be more educated about because our classic old school reference textbooks often picture disease patterns on Caucasian skin. And it doesn't always look that way, let's face it. So I think that this offers a much more comprehensive practice pattern looking at pictures like this. And then to link back to talking about patients again, I think what's so important about this is if you're going to show a patient a picture of a possible condition, and especially relate it to say, doesn't this look like what you have? Having it on the appropriate skin tone is so important. So the other nice thing about this is you can actually earn CME credit every time you search. That's why I was saying look into whether or not your CME will cover this because it costs on the order of about $399 to $499 a year. There are monthly subscription plans that are slightly more expensive, but of course it's cheaper if you subscribe for the whole year. Why is there a difference between them? Well, the $499 actually adds this other feature called Derm Expert, and this is pretty cool. It uses your phone's camera and gives you artificial intelligence support, is what they call it, for skin conditions. So I was playing around with this with our twins when they were newborns a few months ago, and they had seborrheic dermatitis. Awful. So I took a picture of my newborn, input their information, and the computer used the image to pull down the most likely skin conditions associated with the issue. Number one, seborrheic dermatitis followed by about 80 other really freaky things that then made me wonder if I had something else to worry about. But the point is, technology is evolving. And now we're using things like your phone's camera to help interpret what that rash is. I do love the opportunity to be able to pull up rashes on a variety of skin tones. I was talking to one of the residents recently, and we had a Caucasian patient, and we were looking at some rash like pityriasis rosea or something like that. And I wanted to show them how it would look different on a patient with darker skin. And I couldn't find a picture online anywhere. I agree. So this is a great way to localize that information and have it quick access. I know that Corpendium is doing a lot of work on this and putting together a really good variety of pictures. And I think that's going to be a helpful resource to accomplish that same goal pretty soon. But for now, I think that would be a wonderful teaching tool for patients and for the residents. And quite frankly, for me as well. Oh, I agree. And I'm looking forward to Corpendium. That's on my list as well. Five, simply saying. So trying to, again, diversify what I'm providing you all with here is an app called Simply Saiyan, S-A-Y-N. 
Simply Saiyan is also a free app. This is from Phoenix Children's Hospital. This app is used to help clearly communicate medical situations to children. It sounds really simple, right? But that's half of what makes pediatricians so good at what they do, is all of that training that they have is not just medical, they also learn how to talk to kids, and sometimes even more intimidating, is talking to parents. This app uses pictures, sounds, and a child-friendly glossary of terms to help facilitate clear conversations between the provider, child, and family. So to provide an example, yet again from my menagerie of small children, my daughter had to get an MRI of her lower back. She was about three years old at the time. You can pull up what is an MRI, and it gives you a way of describing it to a kid such that they might understand it, as well as gives you pictures of the machine so it's not intimidating, the sounds the machine makes, so it has several clips in there of the banging and clicking, so the kid is not the least bit surprised by that. And it even goes through with them what they may need to do before they get the MRI in terms of, in our case, the IV and what to expect and how to describe it to a child so that they suddenly don't freak out and distrust you for the rest of the visit after they get that little tiny pinch that actually hurt really badly after it took two attempts. So I think that this is a great app to have because it's free. And sometimes it just recontextualizes, especially for those of us who don't see kids very often, how we should be approaching a child and family when we're talking about doing a procedure or a test in the emergency department. So is this an app that you would watch before speaking to the child, or is this an app that you would actually show the child and have them watch and it would explain everything directly to them? I would say a little bit of both, depending on how often you see kids. So I usually take a peek at this just to see what might be in there, for instance, about a CT scan, but it is geared toward the child. So it does show pictures and even has a section where they can doodle push buttons to see what the sounds are. All of that is designed to be child-friendly. So it is something that you can use both to quickly review for yourself, as well as show the child on your phone what to expect. I'm assuming they don't have things like thoracotomy that you really don't necessarily want the family to know what to expect. <laughs> yeah, I have not come across that one yet. Uh, <laughs> I admit that's not one of the ones on my list. It'll be just a little pinch as we slice through. <laughs> so now, you know, most parents have a cell phone and I do a lot of work on analgesia in the ER and that ouchless ER and so much of it is distraction. But when you read studies on that, often they suggest VR goggles and toy robots and things that aren't necessarily accessible or reasonable in most emergency departments. Sometimes the parents put a movie or a TV show on for the kid, but a lot of times that kid has seen every single episode of Coco Melon already and they need something a little bit more engaging to forget about the procedure you're doing. Do you have any apps that will really engage a kid for 5, 10, 15 minutes so that I can get a lax shot? There are some situations where it looks like you're either using ketamine or YouTube to get the kid to comply. In those situations, I always first and foremost ask, do you have anything on your phone that might help us here? You would be surprised how many people are subscribers to Netflix, YouTube TV, Disney Plus. All of these applications are typically available on their phone and they may not even realize it at the time, especially depending on what's going on with their child. If they don't have those and they still have access to the app store, I usually recommend they consider downloading an app called Disney Story Realms. What's nice about this is it is free, 
But as with everything with Disney, there's also an upper level, which is about $4.99 a month. That's a little on the costly side, especially if you're just using this as a distraction app as a parent. But this app provides at baseline not only a couple of small video games and puzzles, but also books, because it is nice to focus sometimes on going back to basics and reading, not just putting a video in front of your child. If they're willing, there is a low-cost app that I keep on my phone, say I'm going to trust the child with my phone, called Balloonimals. Balloon like the word, dash I-M-A-L-S. Balloonimals is $1.99. On the screen, you can select the color balloon that you want, and if you tap on the screen, it blows up the inflatable balloon. Apparently, you can actually blow into the speaker on your phone, but clearly that's not very COVID-friendly right now. And if you keep clicking on it, it will actually fold the balloon with a lot of creaky, rubbery sounds that are very engaging to a child into different types of animals. And then after that, if you push on the animal, it will do things like jump up and down or roar if it's the lion. It's a great way to completely take a kid by surprise, and it buys you a couple of critical minutes. There's another good app for your slightly older child, like maybe four years and up called Tizzy Hospital, T-I-Z-I Hospital. It's also free, but $4.99 unlocks way more features. It's actually a pretty cool virtual hospital. The idea is that the child can select on the screen any number of different characters, be it a physician, physical therapist, nurse, technician, all within these different levels of the hospital, and actually move things around, move the patients onto the x-ray table, do a surgery, put somebody back to their bed, and It's kind of neat because they're essentially role-playing how to take care of patients and doing it at their own speed. So it's very good at distracting my five-year-old for at least 20 to 30 minutes at a time until I pull my phone away. I love the balloonimals because the parent kind of is probably going to be as engaged as the child. And I feel like 60% of my procedural impediments are not from the child. They're from the parent. So I'm very excited about that one. I hear you on that loud and clear. Okay, so I do a lot of culture follow-ups, and I'm also in charge of patient concerns, which basically means patient complaints for my department. I have to call a lot of people, and if I'm not calling from a hospital number, I don't necessarily want to give everyone my cell phone number. Sometimes I do, but I would love to have another option to contact them without my phone number popping up. Is there a way to do that using apps? There is, and that is huge. One of my positions, we tried to call back every single patient we saw in the emergency department. And you can imagine how difficult that is if you don't have a way to do it from your cell phone. So there is an app through Doximity, D-O-X-I-M-I-T-Y. Doximity is actually a very well-known medical application with a lot of different features, including reference tools. But there is a Doximity dialer inside that app. What's great about this is you can actually input whatever phone number you want to display to the patient within the app. So for instance, I have my emergency department main number listed as the outgoing call number, so they'll never see my actual cell phone. You can call the patient and let it ring and have a conversation if they answer, or there are also features on here that let you jump straight to voicemail. Say you don't get the patient. And then you're wondering, well, I wonder if they'll call back the main emergency department and then ask for the secretary who's then going to track me down at home. The great thing about the app is not only can you just leave a regular voicemail, you can also leave a no reply text, which gives them information about it was me and I was trying to call you and I'll try back later. So that way, 
you're trying to keep things at arm's length, as you pointed out on the one hand, but at the same time, making sure the patient's not wondering why they're getting these random calls from the hospital without knowing what's going on. And if I'm hearing you correctly, I could also use this app to prank call my colleagues in my free time. (laughs) You have in mind that I must admit is very entertaining. We should spend more time together because I'm learning all kinds of things from you too. This is good. (laughs) Oh, no, no. The last time we hung out, you took pictures of my children and put them in your burn lecture as what not to do. Yeah. I mean, well, when you take a marshmallow, light it on fire, and then start swinging the sharp stick (laughs) violently back and forth, I saw a teachable moment there. I don't know. (laughs) Is there an app for parenting, just in general, that can parent instead of me? Based on my own parenting thus far, if you find one, please let me know, because I feel completely inadequate just about every moment of my day. Well, I, on the other hand, feel very empowered. I am so not technologically savvy and literally must be the only person on earth who actually uses my cell phone to make phone calls. And I've actually gotten a wealth of information that I can use. I thought it was very helpful. And thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thanks so much for having me. And everybody keep searching for apps. These things are out there. Share them as much as possible, because that's how we all get better. Endless apps just got endlesser. Always endless apps. Ten bucks. Always Friday. What's an app? Justin Carlson is the man from Ilkor. All right, so it's that time of year that Ilkor has released its much-awaited guidelines for 2022. I asked you to pick three for this year, and you've done something you like to call the good, the bad, and the ugly. Tell us about that. Yeah, there are a number of different PICOs that Ilkor looks at through all the different task forces, first aid, ACLS, BLS. And Justin, just so everyone is on the same page, the PICOs that you refer to, actually, uh, I'm glad you used the Canadian pronunciation because the term did originate in Canada, is just how ILCOR describes its summary of the research question. So it stands for population, intervention, comparison, outcome, and time. PICOs. There are three that are coming out this year that I think one will be fairly straightforward. Hopefully we'll be able to get behind one that's a little more controversial. And then one that I anticipate will create a bit of discussion and maybe turn a good part of the EM community against me. But I'm just reporting the data. These are the good, the bad, and the ugly from some PICOs that we've looked at this year. Don't kill the messenger? Is that, what, is that what you're saying? I mean, you're the man from Ilkor and you're saying don't kill the messenger? I'm reporting okay. the news. I'm not making it. No. <laughs> All right, we'll go with that. Okay, so let's, uh, without further ado, let's go to the first one. The good. Vasopressin and corticosteroids, and I'm giving the top line here, vasopressin and corticosteroids for cardiac arrest. Ilcor is suggesting against the routine use of that combination. Yeah, so this is something, this is an interesting combination of medications that's been looked at, and we've certainly examined a number of different medications in cardiac arrest and discussed epinephrine on MRAP multiple times, amiodarone, lidocaine, bicarb, calcium, all sorts of things. And this is a combination that's been looked at in a few different studies, specifically two RCTs in 2009 and 2013. And the thought behind the vasopressin steroid combination is vasopressin may increase coronary perfusion pressure and may increase rates of ROSC. For glucocorticoids in animal models, they do increase rates of ROSC but they're mixed in other disease processes, such as in TBI, they're actually associated with harm. So what is interesting is to say, all right, well, let's look at this combination 
And as I mentioned, two RCTs had come out previously. There was a new RCT by Anderson et al. that came out in early 2021. And that actually added additional information to this. So for the PCOST, in this question was an adult who have cardiac arrest in any setting, in hospital or out of hospital, does the administration of vasopressin and corticosteroids during CPR compared to not giving that combination really result in any health-related quality of life? And that was a number of different outcomes. First of all, survival with neurologic outcome at discharge, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, 180 days, even a year out. We also looked at more short-term outcomes such as ROSC. Now, at the end of the day, you had 47 studies, but there were only three RCTs, right? Correct. We searched through all the literature, identified 47 studies that might work that got whittled down to three RCTs, those two previous ones from 2009, 2013, and then the more recent one by Anderson et al. All three of these trials compared a combination of glucocorticoids, which is 40 milligrams methylprednisolone once, and vasopressin, 20 units, for a maximum of four to five doses. And those were compared to placebo. It is important to note all three of these studies were done in hospital. So we have no RCTs in the out-of-hospital setting for this combination. What is interesting is that the results favored the vasopressin and steroid combination for return of spontaneous circulation, and that was an odds ratio of 2.09, but it was not significant when we look at some of the longer-term outcomes and some of the outcomes that patients may care more about, survival at discharge and favorable neurologic outcome. This is similar in multiple different ways that the data were analyzed, including a Bayesian analysis, and if you want more on Bayesian analysis, you can go to the May 2020 Time to Talk a Little Nerdy, where Ken and Swami dive deep into what Bayesian analysis means, but it's another way to analyze these data. And across the board, the analysis found similar results. And so because of that, we as ILCOR suggest against the use of the combination of vasopressin and steroids in addition to usual care, because we're not real confident in the effects. We have three RCTs on the in-hospital side. We have none in the out-of-hospital side. And because of that, also recommend against the use of the combination. We don't have data at this time to support long-term patient-oriented outcomes. And so as a result, in both the in-hospital and out-of-hospital setting, we recommend against the routine use of that combination. Okay, so I got it. There's no evidence for the routine use. Are there any cases where you might use one or, or both of these agents in, a, in an arrest scenario? I think the answer of whether or not you might use them, the jury's still out. It's unclear if they would be beneficial. There are certainly harms, specifically back to the glucocorticoids in patients with traumatic brain injury. There are real risks of these medications. There have been multiple trials comparing vasopressin and other medications in cardiac arrest, such as epinephrine, that really haven't shown a benefit for that. So there's not a clear benefit for these. There is some harm in certain patient populations. So at this time, I don't know that there's a specific patient population where th that may benefit from this combination. I think I'm going to take that as a no, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> That's the short answer. Yes, I appreciate it. <laughs> that was quite a long way of saying no. <laughs> it was. You're not giving this. I mean, no. And, and I remember when vasopressin was first put in the ACLS algorithms, and it was exciting. It was like, wow, this is something new, and it might be much better than epi, and then sort of got thrown in there as an option, and now it's sort of, you know, the, it's, uh, the, it's gone through the, whole, the full cycle of uh, excitement to disappointment it, as far as I'm concerned. It has which many things in cardiac arrest have gone through the cycle of excitement 
mm, less enthusiasm and then disappointment. As we've studied <laughs> many, many things in cardiac arrest, unfortunately, many have not panned out. The bad. All right, let's get to something just a little bit more controversial now. Number two, we have uh, a recommendation on advanced life support and specifically the use of point-of-care ultrasound as a diagnostic study during cardiac arrest. And so in this case, Ilcor is suggesting against the routine use of point-of-care ultrasound during an arrest. So what do you say to that? Well, That's a bold statement. It is a bold statement. And we in emergency medicine love our ultrasound. We've pioneered this and pushed this. And our ultrasound gurus in our field are amazing at what they do. We've used POCUS for a number of different interventions, a number of different procedural as an adjunct to the procedures that we do. And there's some rationale to say POCUS really could be used in cardiac arrest. It might help us identify reversible causes. And so what we wanted to look at was, what is the accuracy? How useful is POCUS during cardiac arrest? And so in adults in cardiac arrest, we chose both in-hospital and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. The intervention is any particular finding on point-of-care ultrasound compared to some confirmatory test, CAT scan, x-ray, something that would confirm the diagnosis that was thought to be identified on ultrasound. And then the outcome was what specific etiology or pathophysiologic state was identified by the ultrasound, by POCUS, that led to the cardiac arrest. So how good is it at identifying the things that we would want it to from a reversible causes standpoint? Now, the full review of this is published by Reynolds et al. as a systematic review. And the short story is they found a lot of studies that somewhat touch on this, but not a lot that really helped to answer this specific question. So we identified over 8,000 hits, identified 12 observational studies, 26 combinations of different tests and reference standards with six different etiologies looked at for cardiac arrest. These are things like cardiac tamponade, pulmonary embolism, myocardial infarction, things that we might be able to use POCUS to be able to identify. And really, all of these studies had high risk of bias for subject selection. There was lack of blinding in some of them. The reference standards there was confounding, there was differential verification, there were all sorts of challenges with interpreting these. And really only one study had sufficient data to complete a contingency table. That's where we can calculate the sensitivity and specificity. So there's no meta-analysis for this because you can't meta-analyze when there's only one study. But in that one study, sure, the sensitivity and the specificity for things looked great, 100% for cardiac tamponade for both the sensitivity and the specificity. But Justin, just to give a little pushback here, we have an N of 48 in that one study. You know, not a lot. Exactly. So of the over, if we think back to where this started, over 8,000 hits, maybe 12 studies, of those one could be used to calculate sensitivity and specificity, and that had 48 patients. So now when you say, all right, well, what, what should we recommend then? That's where when we take the totality of the evidence, we as Ilcor suggest against the routine use of point-of-care ultrasound during CPR to diagnose reversible causes of cardiac arrest. doesn't mean that there's no value in it, and especially if there are experienced personnel who can perform this without interrupting CPR, and you have a suspicion, a clinical suspicion for a reversible cause, there may very well be value and focus in those situations, but to routinely use it in all cardiac arrests, there's not data to suggest that that's helpful. 
And so that's why we recommend against the routine use of POCUS during CPR. But isn't the most important reason behind the recommendation the fact that we know that interrupting CPR for any reason is really not good for patient outcomes? Exactly. There's a balance between, yes, because we can doesn't mean we always should or need to do POCUS in a, in a patient in cardiac arrest. CPR, good high-quality CPR is still one of the best, if not the most important intervention in combination with defibrillation in patients in cardiac arrest. And while we may want to and are excited to do POCUS and be involved more during that process, if it comes at the cost of reducing the quality of CPR, there is a real risk to the patient for that. And that's why without good, high-quality evidence suggesting that POCUS adds value, we really recommend against the routine use of it. Now, I do want to say one thing that's really important is the decision to terminate a cardiac arrest is separate from this question. And many individuals, and we've had segments on MRAP talking about this, about when do we terminate resuscitation and what might be the role of ultrasound at that time to look for cardiac activity in making the decision to terminate an arrest. That's a different question altogether, but it's important for us to pull those two apart and know that this is really looking at, should we use it to look at reversible causes of cardiac arrest? The ugly. And last but not least, the ugly, Justin. We recommend the provision of accredited ACLS for healthcare providers who provide it. Oh, I can hear the frustration of my colleagues through my headphones right now. And I know we pride ourselves on not doing the merit badge courses and that we manage more cardiac arrests than just about anybody else in healthcare. And we wear that as a badge of honor that we take care of patients in cardiac arrest. We provide exceptional care day in and day out to patients in cardiac arrest when they come to us in the emergency department or other acute care settings. And so to hear a recommendation that says we should take an ACLS course or some other advanced life support, BLS, ALS, neonatal life support, it hurts us. <laughs> I know it's hurt many, many colleagues that I've talked to about this specific PCOST, but let's look at the data a little bit and try to understand what's What's deeper inside this recommendation? So the PICOS for this is the population are patients requiring in-hospital cardiac resuscitation of any age, youngest to oldest patients that we take care of. And the intervention is prior participation in one or more of these accredited life support courses. Those include ACLS, PALS, HBB, which is helping babies breathe, neonatal life support, a number of different courses. And that's compared to not participating in one of those. And what we looked at for outcomes were ROSC, survival to hospital discharge or 30 days, survival to one year, survival with favorable neurologic outcomes, and specifically for neonates, rates of stillborn, stillbirth rates, and then neonatal and perinatal mortality. So very, very impactful outcomes. And again, a number of different courses were looked at in this review. This was what's called an adalopment, where we identify other systematic reviews, well-done systematic reviews, and can incorporate some of those plus add to them if new studies have been added to the literature. So there have been systematic reviews on this topic. And since those were published, we've identified other studies, one on ALS, 11 on neonatal training, and six on helping babies breathe. So there are 
are additional studies, there are new studies added to this the previous systematic review. And what did they find? The one new ACLS study was actually in nurses from India who took an American Heart Association course. And in full transparency, ILCOR is one of the member organizations of ILCOR is the American Heart Association. But when we look at the outcomes, when we look at what happened, rates of ROSC were higher after those nurses had taken ACLS through the American Heart Association. And survival to hospital discharge was also higher with an odds ratio of 2.48. Now, when it comes to neonatal resuscitation, the data is really impressive. And I have to admit that having undergone these courses myself, that it really did make a direct impact on my neonatal resuscitation back in the day. When looking across the spectrum of the neonatal courses, almost every outcome was improved. Stillbirths were lower. One-day neonatal mortality was lower. Seven-day mortality, 28-day mortality, perinatal mortality. All of those were lower when individuals on the healthcare team taking care of those patients had some formal training in resuscitation. Now, these are really, really remarkable numbers. And as we both know, in education, we just don't see this type of clear, direct line between education and outcomes, patient-oriented outcomes. And so it's hard to ignore that. You're right, Justin. It is. And that's why there are still multiple limitations with each of these studies and pooling them together. And there are multiple different patient populations and and you know, when we're talking about neonates that are adults, there's lots of limitations there. But this is a situation where we as ILCOR made a discordant recommendation. Usually with all that heterogeneity, all those potential confounders, we would say, look, this is low certainty evidence. We don't have enough here to make a recommendation. However, each of these data points point in the direction that this training results in improved outcomes for patients So we've recommended the provision of accredited advanced life support training for healthcare providers who provide advanced life care support, both for adults and made that recommendation for newborns and babies. So Justin, what do you say to all of us emergency physicians who make that assertion that our board certification and recertification makes us eminently qualified (laughs) to conduct all of these resuscitations? I mean, isn't it that these recommendations aren't really aimed at us per se? And I think that's the important key distinction. If we think of cardiac arrest, it's not just you or me as the physician in the room. We are part of a larger team, and it's really important that we as team members have a shared mental model of how we're caring for a patient, how we're running the resuscitation, how we're coordinating the efforts. And so if we are the only ones who have gone through medical school, residency, continued training on resuscitation techniques, but don't have a shared model with the rest of the team about what else needs to be done and why certain interventions are important and why other ones might not be, that puts us at a disadvantage. So it's really important that every member of the healthcare team that's involved in the resuscitation has a good understanding of what's happening during that, and we can communicate effectively about what our goals of care are. Right. Well, I'm a little uncomfortable with it. But the part that uh, resonates best with me is the fact that you can't be the leader and the teacher of the course and the way that people are taught it unless you yourself know the course. It's it's almost like a necessary part of, of leading others and teaching others is having this common set of guidelines. So 
I would encourage anyone who's interested in it, if you haven't taught a CPR course, if you hadn't taught ACLS recently, consider taking a course, consider being an instructor, consider being one of the leaders in this space and helping to share your knowledge because we do as emergency clinicians, as physician advanced practice clinicians, we have a lot of expertise in this area. Consider sharing that with our other partners who are also around the bedside when we're caring for patients in cardiac arrest. Summary. All righty then, quick summary of this year's ILCOR recommendations. We call them the good, the bad, and the ugly, based on how much blowback they're likely to bring our man from ILCOR, Justin, here. But in all seriousness, a lot of science and a lot of thought go into these, and so they're really worth our attention. They are recommending against the routine use of vasopressin and steroids in cardiac arrest, against the use of point-of-care ultrasound during cardiac arrest for reversible causes, and for accredited courses for advanced life support and neonatal resuscitation for those that provide that care. For those looking for more information, a link to the ILCOR website is provided in the show notes, along with the audio links to the EMMA critiques on a couple of the papers that were involved in the analyses. And once again, for your feedback... Uh, send them all to the mailbag segment. We'll be happy to respond to comments about how uh, merit badge courses are encouraged now. <laughs> Thank you, Justin, and we will see you again next time. Thank you. Justin Carlson is the man from Ilkor. Tired of going commando into lawsuits? Stop messing around! Well, it's time to put on some medical legal briefs with Mike Weinstock. Stick around. I'm Mike Weinstock from Medical Legal Briefs, where we use legal outcomes to make patients safer. Joining me today is Susie Demeester, emergency medicine physician in Bend, Oregon. And Susie, I want to tell you about this case and a little bit of a spoiler alert. This did go to legal action and did go all the way through to trial. The case. Chris, a 16-year-old high school student and basketball player, in the late afternoon of February 17th, was taken to the emergency department with complaints of chest pain. He said his pain was 7 out of 10, and he had vomited earlier in the day. The emergency physician thought maybe he was suffering from gastroenteritis or food poisoning. He was given IV fluids. He was given IV antiemetics. He was feeling better, and then was discharged home with a prescription for an antiemetic. Before we talk at all about what happened with this case, I thought we'd jump out of it and go through a differential diagnosis, not of chest pain, because we all know those you know big three, ACS, PE, and dissection, the second three, tamponade, tension pneumothorax, and Borhov syndrome, but the specific differential for chest pain in children. I'd like to start out by thinking that it's probably really important to note that this patient is on that borderline of being a pediatric patient versus an adult patient. How this patient looked very likely impacted how the physician approached his workup and his treatment and his disposition. In kids, chest pain is non-cardiac over 98% of the time. Let's start with a differential for kids. I am going to be much more likely to jump to a GI-type diagnosis, as was the case for this patient, or musculoskeletal diagnosis, whereas with those adults, I'm really going to be focused on those big three. Yeah, I practice exactly the same way, Susie. And the fact is that 
it's a balance, isn't it, right? We're trying to thread this needle between the risk of missing serious disease and the risk of overtesting and false positive tests and maybe risk of radiation or medications that are unnecessary. And with kids, it's even tougher because so frequently it's going to be exactly like you said, something like musculoskeletal or GI or even anxiety related. And we'll go through a study by Salib et al. of 3,700 patients and find the etiologies that they determined were causing the chest pain. But first, this differential diagnosis just like you're saying, is different in kids than it is with adults. Yeah, I like to break it down in kids probably to two buckets. And the first bucket is going to be non-cardiac. That's going to include musculoskeletal, pulmonary or airway related. So things like asthma, pneumonia, pneumothorax, pleurisy, gastrointestinal etiologies, and then psychiatric etiologies or anxiety. Now, in regards to potential cardiac etiologies, I think For me, pericarditis, myocarditis are realistically going to be at the top of my list over things like MI, PE, and dissection. And then for younger kids, I'm going to remember to think about Kawasaki's, pretty rare, but some zebras like anomalous coronary arteries or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So the thing that makes this so tough is that oftentimes children or their parents even think, you know, chest pain is a heart attack. And they sort of have that expectation, maybe even sort of focus us a little bit towards that cardiac etiology. But exactly like you're saying, it is so infrequent that that's something that's going on. So the study that I talked about a second ago, this is by Salib et al. They looked at 3,700 patients. This is in one hospital system, and it's over a period of 10 years. And they, of those 3,700 patients, only found 37 cases. So one out of 100 where this was a cardiac etiology. And the remaining patients had either unknown etiology, which was actually a little bit more than half, musculoskeletal, which was a little bit less than half, and then pulmonary, GI, and anxiety-related, and then drug-related in a few. Now, it's interesting, and you mentioned asthma. Well, one of the diagnostic criteria of asthma is chest tightness. Obviously, we're including not just pain, but discomfort, tightness, pressure, right? Well, certainly, if a patient comes in with an asthma exacerbation, they're going to have that discomfort. But it's not that it's because, you know, the eight-year-old is having an MI, of course. Interestingly, in this study, of all of these patients, these 3,700 patients, there were only three deaths. Two of them, unfortunately, were from suicide, and one is because of a spontaneous retroperitoneal hemorrhage. Susie, I know I'm like the best doctor in the world. Not sure I've ever diagnosed a spontaneous retroperitoneal hemorrhage in a child. (laughs) I don't know about you. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you on that one. Right. Okay. All right. I was feeling very insecure there for a second. Let's make sure to hammer this point home very clearly. The vast majority of pediatric patients who present with chest pain, more than 99% of them will have a non-cardiac diagnosis. It's really important for us to know when we initiate the workup because we can't do the same workup that we do for adults with chest pain, it's going to be a very different evaluation. Let's bridge back to the original case. Let's see what happened to Chris. So three days later, the patient, Chris B, returns to the emergency department. But this time, it's around 3 a.m. and it's via EMS. He's complaining of increasing chest pain that's spreading across to his chest. And he reported that his pain increased to about a 9 out of 10, and he was unable to receive any relief from over-the-counter analgesics. A little more concerning now. 
Another red flag there. Yes. With the second visit, Dr. K was the ER physician who took Crispy's history, performed the exam, and then ordered a chest X-ray. And at first, the physician was suspicious that maybe Chris had some infiltrates on the right side of his lung. But the official radiology report after Chris's discharge was read as negative for infiltrate. Dr. K released Crispy from the hospital with a diagnosis and treatment for bronchitis and pneumonia. Now we've got a little bit more to unpack, but it sounds like we're still not quite at our diagnosis yet. This patient bounced back once. We're going to see, again, foreshadowing here, that there is yet another visit for us to talk about. But this balance that I brought up earlier is what we do all the time at the bedside of the emergency department when we try to make sure that we're not over-evaluating a patient and overworking up a patient with a lot of different tests or missing, obviously, serious disease. So I came up with a list of some things that would make us more concerned about a population that, in general, is pretty not concerning. Again, children with chest pain, right? So it's chest pain and chest pain and syncope, chest pain and chest pain that starts suddenly, chest pain and radiation to the back, vital sign abnormalities, which could be tachycardia, tachypnea, hypoxemia, hypotension, or maybe even severe hypertension, chest pain associated with a seizure, chest pain and drug use, and we're sort of thinking of things like cocaine or sympathomimetics, as well as others, of course, chest pain and dyspnea, chest pain and diaphoresis, chest pain and sort of pain out of proportion. And I know when you described this bounce back visit, this was nine out of 10 pain. So, you know, people have all different levels of what they think is pain. I've seen nine out of 10 pain when they're sitting there playing on their iPhone. But, you know, at least what we think presenting at 3 a.m. by squad probably did have pretty severe pain. And the last thing I just want to mention is chest pain and lack of an alternative viable diagnosis. So by that, what I mean is if a patient has musculoskeletal, which is based on the study by sleep that we just talked about, which is the most frequent cause of chest pain in the pediatric population, I think of three things that really go along with musculoskeletal pain. Now, it doesn't have to be all of these three, but if you do have all three, it makes it much more likely. One. And that's a mechanism. In other words, I just lifted a heavy dresser off the floor and had a sudden onset of chest pain while I was lifting. Two. Subjective pain, i.e., it hurts when I turn my torso to the left. Three. An objective pain, i.e., when I press on them in the left lower sternal border, they yell ouch and withdraw from pain, just for example. So this list of chest pain and other symptoms would be things that would make me much more concerned that there's a more serious etiology with pediatric chest pain. The first most important thing is to at least consider, am I missing something bad here? So it doesn't mean you have to do a full workup, but just ask yourself before discharge. And history is going to be really critical for a pediatric patient. We know that certain findings like you talked about, like nausea and diaphoresis, are highly associated with ACS. And then, especially for that pediatric patient, because they just haven't lived that long, we really should get in the habit of asking about a family history. So a history of sudden cardiac death, a history of heart problems at a young age, maybe a history of pulmonary embolism. I'm so glad you said that. And of course, with our bounce back patients, of course, that's sort of my area of interest, right? We want to be a little bit more cautious, just go a little bit further 
than our average, okay, you strained your chest, we're going to give you some ibuprofen, see you later, bye, right? And as it turns out, when they did get some additional history, they found that the patient, though undiagnosed, probably had a diagnosis of Marfan syndrome. I'll tell you what happened. He went home and he was okay for a period of time. So I'm guessing the family thought, oh, it was the antibiotics that helped us. And there's always that problem with all of us in medicine that we deal with on a daily basis, the difference between association and causation. So that more likely than not is what caused the family to be reassured. Six months later, interestingly, on August 1st, he was again rushed to the ER. This time he had a ruptured thoracic aortic dissection and died a short time later from undiagnosed Marfan syndrome. And it did proceed, as we talked about before, to legal action. So the allegation from the plaintiff was not a big surprise. And the most common allegation in all these medical legal cases is failure to diagnose. Specifically, they said failing to perform tests that might have revealed the problem. From the defense, though, they said that the standard of care, and this is sort of an interesting way they have this defense, the standard of care did not require him to spot this rare Marfan syndrome. So when you think about a defense in a medical legal case, you have the standard of care and you have the second part, which is causation or proximate cause, saying something like, if I would have made the diagnosis, would it have made a difference? Well, in this case, certainly it would have. If they had diagnosed an error dissection, it could have been managed and hopefully successfully so. But in this case, it was really on that first part, the standard of care. And the question was really, with this presentation, was this so suggestive of a thoracic aortic dissection that it required the physician to make this diagnosis? Clearly, this is an extremely difficult diagnosis to make in the emergency department. We've commented many times in prior segments that it's hard to make the diagnosis of aortic dissection. It rarely presents in the classic way. This is clearly not a classic presentation. We're talking about a 16-year-old with undiagnosed Marfan's disease. But there are always things that we can take away from the case that can perhaps help us in the future. From a history perspective, we want to ask the patient if they have a history of a connective tissue disorder or if they have a family history of connective tissue disorders, which might advise us on the likelihood for that patient. Even with that history, it's hard to imagine that the physician seeing the patient would have gone much further given that they had a chest x-ray, which did not show any abnormality. In addition to the history of connective tissue disorders, there's some other pieces of the history that we can hone in on to maybe guide ourselves toward this diagnosis. Which things have been shown to really correlate with thoracic aortic dissection? Those are going to be patients who describe their pain to be tearing or ripping. Pain that is migratory. I especially like to think of pain above and below the diaphragm. Pain that is sudden onset. And then some physical exam findings like pulse deficits, and then focal neurologic deficits. But unfortunately, overall, physical exam is just not going to be super helpful. Those classic physical exam findings that we associate with aortic dissection, such as blood pressure discrepancies or a new murmur, well, those are present in less than one third of cases. Yeah, and that's really frustrating to us, isn't it? Because we'd like to think that our exam could be helpful, but I mean, look, it's not helpful with acute coronary syndrome in general or with pulmonary embolism in general. So no big surprise that it's not super helpful, at least in the early stages of thoracic aortic dissection. Once you get to the point that you're pre-arrest, obviously there's all kinds of things. So moving on to testing, the problem with thoracic aortic dissection is that 30 or 40% of the time, your chest x-ray is going to be normal. 
if it is abnormal, if you do have a positive finding, that would certainly make you concerned. Things like widened mediastinum, a abnormal aortic contour, deviation of the trachea or the esophagus, or a pleural effusion. Now, EKG, in the same way as a chest x-ray, there's not really a diagnostic EKG. There's no like STEMI of <laughs> aortic dissection, right? Usually normal or even showing sinus tachycardia. Oftentimes, your EKG is going to be most helpful to think about other things. It'd be nice if there was one test, like a D-dimer, to rule out dissection. Unfortunately, current evidence does not suggest that a D-dimer alone can be used to rule out a dissection. And then furthermore, ASAP clinical guidelines echo this sentiment and recommend against using a dimer to rule out a dissection. And I've seen some scoring tools out there, but I'm going to be honest, if you're at the point of scoring for a dissection, I think you're good. Like you've thought about the diagnosis. It's those patients with aortic dissection that's masquerading as syncope, GI symptoms, as was the case for this patient, neurologic complaints. I mean, how scary is it that 10% of patients fall into this category of painless dissection? Just as we want to balance the risk of missing serious disease with the risk of a false positive test, we also need to balance the risk of testing in children, such as radiation risk. And myself, as well as all of us, want to minimize that. However, we want to make sure we haven't overcompensated and are minimizing it so much that we miss a serious disease. Back to the case. I know we've kept the listener in super suspense here, Susie, as far as the outcome of this trial, but there's an article by Elif Tarides, and it's in the show notes. And the article is just such an interesting title. They say, Litigation in Non-Traumatic Aortic Diseases, a Tempest in the Malpractice Maelstrom. But such an interesting part of this article is, first of all, that they list over 30 different aortic dissections and why those were missed and what happened. As well, they have this quote. And he says in here, quote, difficulty in diagnosis, delayed diagnosis, or failure to diagnose are so common with thoracic aortic dissection as to approach the norm for this disease, even in the best hands rather than the exception. He's sort of in some way, Susie, saying that the standard of care is to miss aortic dissection. And look, with this case here, this was a double bounce back patient. I would agree with you that I'm not sure that I or you or anyone really could have made this diagnosis on the first visit. Certainly the second visit was a little bit more concerning, three o'clock in the morning coming in by squad, nine out of 10 pain. I would advise all of our listeners, don't count on quoting this author. <laughs> at trial. And speaking of trial, this case was not dropped. It was not settled. It did go to trial and the verdict came in for the defense. Susie, this has been such a interesting exercise in thinking about serious causes of chest pain in children, about balancing the risk of missing disease and the risk of false positive tests, as well as some pretty specific things about aortic dissection tests as well as history that are helpful and important to make sure that we don't miss this diagnosis. Susie, I'm going to look forward to talking to you next time and doing some more of these medical legal briefs. This has been really interesting, not just from the legal standpoint, but also for the medical. I can't wait till next time. All right. Hey, listeners. Today, I'm here with Dr. Javier Lassa, who's an assistant professor at Texas Children's in both the sections of critical care medicine and cardiology. Javier Lassa. 
Kowalski is co-director of the Cardiac Information and Data Science team and has a particular interest in eCPR. Say what now? eCPR? I mean, uh, I haven't been out there for a while, but what are you talking about? eCPR? Is that like doing CPR via email? Electronically? Compression. Sam. Compression. Sam. Compression. Sam. No idea. But listen on, I will explain. So I know there's been a lot of discussions in the podcast world about adults receiving eCPR, but we're going to talk about it specifically today in terms of pediatrics. And since I primarily work in the emergency room, we're going to talk a little bit about some considerations for eCPR outside of the ICU, but not exclusively. So Javi, anything else you want to add about your background before we start? No, hey, thanks, Jason, for the opportunity. You know, as a cardiac intensivist who spends the vast majority of my time in the cardiac ICU setting, you know, that's a very comfortable spot for us when we're activating eCPR. I think the ER also gives us a little bit of the uh, heebie-jeebies just because it is such a complex choreography and multidisciplinary, you know, and high resource therapy that we offer. And, you know, when you're out of your comfort zone, it really presents a lot of challenges. You have to coordinate so many different people. So I'm really excited to talk about the ER setting, but more importantly, the non-ICU sort of opportunities for this therapy. So thanks again. Can you define eCPR for me? I think many of us share a similar idea, but let's make sure that we're talking about the same thing. Compression. Same. Oh, please. Define away. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's at its core is the active cannulation onto extracorporeal support, typically VA or venoarterial ECMO during active CPR. Now there's obviously the gray zones that we really don't understand exactly how to define in terms of a low flow state. And even post-ROSC, we could all agree that patients are extremely susceptible at that point in time to secondary organ injury. And so if you have, let's say, marginal blood pressures after you got ROS, you have a pulse, people aren't really convinced you have a pulse because it's PEDS and, you know, pulse checks aren't exactly the most sensitive. And you're just sitting there saying, okay, we have a blood pressure, you know, it's marginal, we have a heart rate, we got a pulse. Is that really still the ideal fully perfusion state? And so also the extracorporeal life support organization in a consensus attempt uh, several years ago has said, listen, we're just going to kind of pick a, in somewhat arbitrary, marker of time that says, if you're still cannulating after ROS, but it's within 20 minutes, we're still going to capture that potentially as eCPR. And I, as I mentioned, it's VA, right? So it's venoarterial. Uh, there have been some reports of VV ECMO use post-arrest. But the vast majority is venoarterial. I'm sure we'll get into exactly what VA means because that could be, you know, femoral vessels, neck vessels, and even sort of right atrium to aorta. In a lot of pediatrics, we copy things from adult data or we sort of make our best extrapolation because we just have a little bit of a, a dearth of data in kids. What data is out there for eCPR in pediatric level patients, regardless of the setting? Well, I hope we have like hours uh, for this. Uh, let me just check. Do you have hours? No, you don't. Sorry. Because the data, I mean, to review the data is, is quite complex. And in some ways, this is the inverse of the, of the pediatric experience, which typically extrapolates from adults. The pediatric, especially eCPR experience actually predated adults, although there were reports in the late 60s and 70s of portable bypass being used in the post-cardiotomy adult patients. It was really the, the profound work and, and really vanguard work of Bob Bartlett in Michigan with the development of ECMO especially for respiratory failure that served as sort of the, the trigger for the post-cardiotomy eCPR rescue movement, which started in the late 80s and into the 90s. So, you know, it was really congenital heart surgery and heart surgeons who really pushed the field early. And as they were learning that some of these children may have sudden clinical deterioration events in the immediate post-operative period. So with these fresh sternotomies and open chests and the capacity for a team to mobilize quickly, you see the majority of early evidence for the support of eCPR as a, definitely as a rescue therapy for failed conventional CPR, 
in that population. But I'd say right now, trying to summarize the evidence, the evidence is supporting the use of this in the pediatric population who have cardiac disease if the center has the appropriate resources to develop and maintain a high quality team that works well together. But I still think we have a lot to learn about the use of eCPR in the non-cardiac population really a dearth of evidence to support its use. Yeah, it was a little bit unfair for me to say, hey, can you take five minutes and summarize like your entire <laughs> career? But, but you got at what I was asking about. I know that you will not be able to give us across the board, like here's the best way to do it. But a lot of my questions are, how do you actually go about this? Because that's the practical knowledge that we need. So for a patient who has in-hospital cardiac arrest, they've showed up and they were alive and alert whenever they came in and then they experienced a cardiac arrest. When do you call the ECMO team to start putting them on alert? Is there any guidance for how long do I wait if they arrested in the hospital? Should I alert the team for everybody? And then we can make a decision together whether it's an appropriate patient or do I wait for some length of time or some number of rounds of CPR to see if they get ROSC, knowing that I don't want to wait too long to get started because it's a lengthy procedure to cannulate? Well, a tough question, mostly because I think it's dependent on the location within the hospital. You're going to see some institutions who have a lot of experience in cardiac resuscitation for, you know, post-cardiotomy and congenital heart disease, you know, have set protocols for timing of activation when it happens in the ICU, especially the cardiac ICU. But it's the patients that come in from home, right? It's the patients who, you, who arrest suddenly in the ER setting or in a radiology suite or on the floor that, that we struggle the most with, with trying to, to decide, should I call the team as early as possible? And obviously timing is so important, like you mentioned, because this is a complex choreography. Typically 10 minutes would be sort of the upper threshold for which you should, you should have made a decision by. We use 10 minutes for our get with the guidelines resuscitation analysis, comparing conventional CPR to eCPR. But usually that's an important threshold because you have to imagine another 15, 20 minutes to organize the team and get them available, especially if it's after hours or on weekends. The earlier to at least call the decision makers, the better. We don't do it that often in ER. My call goes out to the CI and the surgeons, and then as a team, they kind of decide whether this is a candidate. During eCPR deployment, do you continue PALS-style treatment? Do you mm -hmm. do epi at the same timing intervals? Do you use similar compression ratios? How do we match eCPR deployment with PALS guidelines? That is actually one of my favorite questions to try and answer, but the reality is, is we don't have enough evidence to give us strong recommendations that PALS is the wrong thing. And there is definitely a movement to try and limit excessive alpha-adrenergic agents, uh, including too much epinephrine, due to concerns of excessive vasoconstriction and the inability to flow, as well as the impact of too much epinephrine on cerebrovasculature, which there's tons of experimental models, animal models, and translational models suggesting that too much epi is bad for the brain, especially in a reperfusion injury model. It's not uncommon for us to have a 30, 40 minute resuscitation onto ECMO, and my perfusionist is immediately saying we can't flow. The child is very clamped down, and we're immediately powering down our vasoactive infusions that were started during CPR, and then having to start significant vasodilators. My personal view is we should probably have a limit. In other words, give epi early and often, but then after you reach a certain threshold of which I'm not going to say I know, maybe the 15 or 20 minute mark or, or five rounds of epi, from there on out, you've activated your team, you've committed to cannulating this patient as a rescue, right? This is their only chance of survival if you can't get them back or you don't think you're going to get them back, you've committed, you know, then focus on high quality CPR. And then this gets to your question about, well, do we need to be doing compressions differently, et cetera? I would say there's absolutely no evidence to support changing how we compress or provide ventilations during eCPR or conventional CPR to this point in time. And you know, obviously the new 
AHA guidelines for pediatric advanced life support just published has changed how we're providing our rescue breaths during CPR. As I'm sure you know, we're now saying 20 to 30 breaths per minute is actually okay, where before it was slower uh, ventilations for pediatric arrest. So nothing to support or refute changing epinephrine dosing and definitely nothing to support changing the way we provide compressions or ventilations. I'm wondering if you can review your internal clock or process for what you do and, and for how long. Are you a shop that does compressions for an X amount of time and then pauses to give surgery the time to do their cannulation? Is it a, an ad hoc thing where you compress for as long as you need to until the surgeon's ready for the next step? And then do you have general guidelines for things like delivery of blood products, calcium monitoring, coagulation monitoring while you're doing all of this? And is it any different than any of your other resuscitations? That, that's a big question, but I'm just I'm yeah. trying to get in the frame of mind. Well, we'll take the first part of that question. How do we choreograph the chest compression provision and pauses? A vast majority are working with surgeons. Again, in our experience at our hospital, critical care physicians do not cannulate. So we don't do modified Seldinger or percutaneous. So the choreography is really dependent on that communication. And if it's a peripheral cannulation, neck or femoral, we will rely on them because the critical care team is providing compressions typically in a sterile environment at that point in time. But we're providing the compressions. We rely on the surgeon to say, please stop. Now, that's where you get into the, the difficulty with variability. Some surgeons are comfortable cannulating a neck in a neonate or infant with compressions ongoing. Some say, I need you to stop. Same thing for femoral vessels. Please stop compressions. And, and that's the challenge, right? You know, as the intensivist, I'm not going to say, no, we're going to keep doing compressions because I need him to put the cannulas in as soon as possible. I need to facilitate that. And if he needs us to stop, then unfortunately, we're going to have to stop. Now, getting to your second question about the additional ancillary support, things like calcium product administration and blood products, we typically will get heparin into these patients ASAP. Once we've activated, our pharmacists are bringing heparin. And we're typically going anywhere from you know 50 to 100 units per kilo. Our recent experience is mostly in the 100 per kilo, especially for single ventricle patients who may have shunt obstruction. But we're, we're giving a bolus of heparin early and getting that in so the surgeons don't have to wait for that before they put the cannulas in. And then our approach to calcium administration just shows some internal uh, variability with how much calcium is being provided. So you know, if you look at large registry analyses of the use of calcium in conventional CPR, there's no association with improvement. In fact, it may be associated with harm. But that's kind of looking at the overall group. You know, we're shooting for ionized calcium above 1.2 in general. Neonates tend to get more calcium. Feel that our experience with the immature myocardium is that their calcium homeostasis would benefit from higher levels and or it's more dependent. And so they'll typically give more calcium boluses. And, you know, it's not unheard of to have, for us to have iCals of 1.5, 1.6 peri-arrest. But we really don't know the impact on the brain, especially the neonatal infant brain with that high of calcium. And and there's some definitely experimental models that suggest that it's probably not good. I know this is probably going to be like an electrified rail, scary discussion to have because we might be touching on the ways other people do things and whether or not we think they are appropriate. But I want to get into the deployment of eCPR outside of the ICU or the OR environment. So I think about this a lot, as particularly with pediatric providers. Many of these things that are high risk very low frequency. In pediatrics, we have tended to really specialize those down, I think, compared to some of our adult colleagues, just because of the lower numbers. We deal with this a lot with procedures in training for both pediatrics and 
and PEM is it's getting harder and harder to get things like airways and, and lines. And eCPR is going to be another one of those relatively rare things. There is probably some critical mass of either real or simulated patients where just like a transplant center, more you do, the better you are at them. And so I have been struggling to internalize who should we be limiting these to? Is this a place where it's a self-fulfilling prophecy? If we never practice doing it outside of the ICU or OR environments, we'll never get good at it. Or is it a, there just simply are not enough numbers and we really should be focusing these on small teams at specific centers that can do this because it's not going to be a resource that's available everywhere in every setting. Well, uh, you're definitely going to want to have a team, whether they're doing it in the ER or they're doing it in the OR or they're doing it in the ICU. I think what we've seen is that because it is surgeon dependent, in other words, we, we rely on, on a surgeon, it's not a uh, just you know a medical physician, that any medical physician that can do it, that limits our team inherently, right? So the difference with peds and adults is that, you know, we're seeing adults being cannulated peripherally by emergency room physicians, by critical care physicians, in addition to surgeons, right? That opens up the opportunities to provide it anywhere and by anyone and therefore varies the teams. So we are inherently bound by a smaller team because of who's doing the cannulation in the pediatric population. Will we get to the point where we're seeing peripheral cannulation by intensivists? And I know there's been a couple case reports of this throughout internationally. We may, we may. I highly doubt it's going to happen anytime soon just because of the predominance of cardiac disease and the relationship that heart centers and patients have with their heart surgeon with regards to, to cannulation. Would I like to see critical care physicians cannulating peripherally? I think it'd be exciting. I think it's going to provide probably more opportunities for variability in care and more challenges because when you keep things tight, obviously you can standardize and perform well as a team multidisciplinary wise. But it does require a lot of intense multidisciplinary training, simulation, et cetera, to even make sure that a simple standardized, a limited team works well. And so, you know, activation of eCPR, you're asking me, sorry, if you can activate in the ER, but where should it happen? I don't have a good answer for you. What does the evidence tell us is actually happening? Well, if you look at the 2016 ELSO report, only 2% of eCPR occurred in the ER environment. The physical cannulation was in the ER. Now, interestingly, 3% of arrests occurred in the ER, but only 2% were cannulated. Interesting, that means that there's some patients who, even though they're arresting actively, they're moved to an OR or ICU environment for the actual cannulation. We don't know if that's the right answer or not. I think there's some concerns about, you know, sterility, if you're going to open the chest, et cetera. There's delays, all right? So you have to do active CPR while moving a, a gurney or, or a stretcher. I'll tell you what our current policy is at Texas Children's, and that is we find the nearest proximal OR. And so for our emergency room, because it's geographically removed from the cardiac ICU, there's a more proximal general operating room, and that's where we move our patients to. And so we do actively move to the OR setting. After long consensus discussions, multidisciplinary, this was uh, felt to be the safest thing for our patients. So that's what we do locally. I wish I could give you five take-home points that says, yes, this is how you do it. This is who gets it. And this is the best uh, mechanism for post-arrest care for these patients, but we still got a ways to go. Javi, thank you for being here today. I think this was absolutely excellent. You both inspired me and scared the crap out of me, which is probably a good place to be. Well, I'm glad I, I, could, I could do both, man. Summary. And I want to thank both Javier and James for putting this together. This is obviously not something you're going to be doing tomorrow if you're not in a gigantic center. But part of our job on MRAP is to tell you what is coming. And as the data comes forward and as more people get trained in this, this could be something that is coming. We know that CPR itself 
is not great uh, for circulation when somebody is in an arrest situation. So here is a method of getting probably a better perfusion, but we will see. It sounds very complicated, and it sounds right now like this is all being done by surgeons and teams in the OR. But if you have this at your place, you need to know the biggest thing for us, if a kid comes in arrested, if you're thinking about this, call the team early. Takes a while for them to come down. So do your normal stuff, call the team early. You can still give them the epinephrine. You can still obviously do your compressions. And when the critical care team, the first thing they're probably going to do is start heparin. Then they're going to get the surgeons and then they're going to put in the cannula. But that's probably going to occur upstairs. Excellent review. We'll see where this goes. Compression. Sam. Compression. Sam. Compression. Sam. Compression. Compression. Sam. Compression. Sam. Compression. Sam. Compression. Compression. All right, everybody, let's get right into it for the Ultra Ultra Summary, November 2022. That is Megan Fix, of course, and she is an associate professor at the University of Utah School of Medicine, and she's also an award-winning associate editor of Corpendium. But I've said too much. Abstract one. Abstract one was about pediatric wrist fractures. So kids, they're out and about, they fall, they have a fusion, they break their arm. We see this really commonly, and we have always been taught to immobilize any fracture and put on a splint. So the authors of this study really were focusing on the torus fracture or the buccal fracture. Remember, you can have a through and through break of the bone, or you can have a green stick fracture in kids. But the buccal fracture is more of that buckling of the cortex of the bone. And these others wanted to know, was it equivalent to just send these kids home with nothing and they would probably get better? Or did they all need to have a rigid immobilization device such as a splint? And really cool of them, they actually had a focus group with parents before starting the study. And you know what? Parents felt a little uncomfortable with somebody saying, oh, here's nothing. So when they actually performed the study, which was well-designed randomized trial in the UK, they had two groups. They had about a thousand kids and you either were given a rigid splint or a plaster cast, or you were given a gauze roll. So literally a gauze roll. And sometimes they didn't even put it on the patient. They just gave it to the parents and gave them instructions. So they had a really good follow-up. They actually were looking primarily at pain at three days. And then they also looked at other outcomes, like if the kids missed school more often, or if they had poor functional outcomes, if the parents were satisfied up to six weeks. And guess what they found? No difference. Essentially, no difference in pain at three days. The kids in the gauze roll or the bandage group may have had a little bit more need for pain medications early on, but pretty much otherwise the same. So the next time you have a torus fracture or a buccal fracture of a pediatric wrist, you may want to just reach for a gauze roll. Abstract two. Abstract two that they covered is a really interesting article and uh, decision rule. So it's derivation and validation of a four-level clinical pre-test probability score for suspected PE to safely decrease imaging testing. And basically what this is, is that they took a bunch of already existing clinical decision rules and they tested them when you use them together. 
Because you and I do that all the time. We do a bit of by bed, we do a bit of wells, we do a bit of this, we do a bit of that. But we don't actually know if a strategy like that actually works. So in this little strategy, when they combined all these and they took the stuff they liked and uh, they did their study study, they found that it led to a substantial reduction in imaging. And it is called the four-level pretest probability rule or four-level pulmonary embolism clinical probability score. And you're going to be able to uh, get this calculator in core penny, but just know this actually has not been validated in a formal sort of outcome study. This was mostly retrospective. Having said that, it's really done very well and probably is ready for prime time straight out of the gate. But just know, if nothing else, that this thing exists. Abstract three. Abstract number three. This is looking at wound repair and specifically for lacerations in the ED when we are repairing them, should we be using sterile gloves and dressings and drapes or non-sterile gloves? And I have to admit, I actually always thought that it was okay to use, you know, the non-sterile purple gloves when suturing up lacerations in the ED as long as you did a lot of irrigation. But interestingly, the authors point out that there's only really one ED study from 2004 that suggests that this is the correct practice. So these authors from the Netherlands did a very robust randomized trial of about 1,500 patients, and they basically randomized them into two groups. One group had sterile gloves and drapes and dressings, and the other group had non-sterile gloves and dressings. And what did they find? Well, no surprise that they found no difference in the infection rate at follow-up. And they actually did have a really good follow-up rate of 91% of the patients they were able to see. And they had a very conservative approach to deciding if something was infected or not. So as Sanjay and Mike point out in the end of the summary, really, we should probably be thinking more about providing very good irrigation in these patients with lacerations in the ED, as opposed to spending a lot of time thinking about whether or not to use sterile non-sterile gloves. And as they point out, remember, the solution to pollution is dilution. Everything will be all right. Dilution is the solution to pollution. Dilution. Except for one small problem, the solution to pollution is not, in fact, the solution. Perhaps a better term would be the solution to wound infection is lots of irrigation and dilution which reduce colony counts and therefore reduce infection rates, possibly by allowing a more adequate immune response for the smaller number of colonies than otherwise would occur. Implication of this, therefore, is that you do not need to use sterile gloves in this situation or sterile drapes because you have dilu- Is this going on too long? Abstract 4. This one is about emojis, and it was published in JAMA, so emojis are a big deal. Think about asking your patients about pain. Typically, most of us have a pain scale somewhere nearby on the wall, for example, and you can ask your patient to rate their pain on a scale of 0 to 10. And most of us have seen this scale 0 to 10 with faces corresponding, and this is called the Wong-Baker scale. And apparently, the Wong-Baker scale is not free. It's not open source. So these authors wanted to look and see if they could use an open-sourced emoji-based pain scale and see if it was equivalent. So they asked about 100 patients to use both of these scales, and guess what? The scales were essentially equivalent. So when you look at these scales head-to-head, you can look at that in the article, the emoji-based scale has six different emojis ranging from very, very happy, open face, smiley emoji, then 
middle of the road is a line, neutral emoji. And then the sad, sad, tons of tears pouring out of the face emoji is the most painful. And they actually don't use 10 emojis. They actually only use six. So hopefully they don't use that in the end to add a poop emoji or something else like that. But the bottom line is, if you want to use an open-sourced emoji-based pain scale, it's pretty much equivalent to the scale that we've been using for a long time. Abstract 6. Abstract 6 is an important paper because you might start seeing patients with abdominal seatbelt signs with negative CTs going home. Because this was a big study with not great methodology that basically said with modern CT scanners, the dreaded I'm going to miss a hollow viscous injury in somebody with an abdominal seatbelt sign on my CT scan, so I'm going to have to keep them in the hospital and watch them for a day or two is probably not true. So over 700 patients and there were 69 people that ended up having a hollow viscous injury and the CT scan basically picked them all up. This is on the back of some other evidence that suggests the same thing. So it's not like back in the day where we thought 25% of people with an abdominal seatbelt sign had a hollow viscous injury. It's much probably smaller than that because, you know, I think what we defined as a abdominal seatbelt sign was a big purple bruise over your belly back in the day and now it's more just like these little scratchy things. But this study has shown that it is very unlikely that you're going to miss something. Now, if they've got a, an exam or something else going on, you might want to keep them. But you might find that the surgeons now start sending home some of these people that even before this study, you may have kept in the hospital for a day or two. Now, maybe they can be observed at home because the miss rate was low. But again, these are modern generation CT scanners that can pick up things like little bits of fluid and little bits of hematoma in your bowel wall. So you'll have to ask your radiologist, do we have said such a CT scanner or is ours from 1950? Abstract 11. This one is another pediatric study that focuses on vital signs. I've always been taught vital signs are vital and they really matter, right, when we're caring for patients in the emergency department. But there is a difference in the way that we approach vital signs upon discharge for adult patients versus pediatric patients. In adults, we get very worried upon sending patients home with abnormal vital signs. But in kids... There is some evidence to suggest that it's okay to send patients home with, say, an abnormal heart rate. If they still have a little bit of a fever or they're screaming because of pain, they may have an elevated heart rate. So these authors did a retrospective chart review of two pediatric EDs in the U.S. of about 100,000 kids. They were looking at, was there a difference in adverse outcomes, specifically return visits to the ED, admissions or adverse events in 48 hours, and they compared two groups, kids that were discharged with at least one abnormal vital sign per their age versus kids that were discharged with normal vital signs. And I'll tell you, the mind-blowing part of this study for me was that we discharge a lot of kids with abnormal vital signs. 21% actually, so 21%, one in five kids over a year at one of these two EDs, almost 100,000 kids was discharged with an abnormal vital sign. So we do it a lot. But did it matter when they looked at the return rate and adverse outcomes? And essentially, no, it did not. About 2.5% of kids in the abnormal vital sign group either came back or got admitted. Similarly, about 2.5% of the kids in the normal vital sign group came back. There is quite a few limitations to this study, as Sanjay mentions. Um, retrospective, they really didn't describe how they determined what an adverse event was, etc. But I think the bottom line is that we send a lot of kids home with abnormal vital signs, and their adverse event rate, at least in this retrospective study, was quite low. 
There were so many other great papers and great discussion, you've got to listen to the whole show. How many times do I have to tell you? A lot of times. You want to be a literature legend if you want people to stop you in the street and say, are you or are you not a literature legend? Well, are you? There's no easier way to be a legend than to be a literature legend. And you should mark the date, the time and the place you were. Megan Fix did her first ultra, ultra summary. It was stunning. It was amazing. It was overwhelming. She's Megan Fix. She's got skills to pay said bills. Herbert up. Well, are you? Fix it. All right, everyone, welcome to this month's mailbag. We are coming to you from the home office in Chugwater, Wyoming. Mm. Have you heard of Chugwater? Well, you have now. It's like a great place. What do you think, Mom? You want to go to Chugwater with me? Beautiful Chugwater, Wyoming. Listen, Jan, there could have been something way worse after the word chug than water, so we will take it. We have a couple of things in the mailbag this month. Letter one. This is kind of a late edition. We have a listener comment from Jessica Pelletier that I think we have to get into. So back in our September introduction, we talked about a case of a patient who came in with pneumonia. And Jessica pointed out that we gave a little bit of a confusing recommendation. So Jan and Swami mentioned in the audio portion, combining azithromycin and doxycycline as an outpatient regimen. But this is not recommended in the IDSA guidelines since these two agents cover a lot of the same bacteria. The current outpatient regimens recommended are one, amoxicillin alone for otherwise healthy people with no comorbidities, doxy alone as a second line, and two, augmentin or a cephalosporin plus doxycycline or a fluoroquinolone alone for patients with comorbid conditions. I looked it up and, and she's absolutely right. I went back and listened. We did say azithromycin with doxycycline. I think a bit of a slip. I think what we were trying to say was amoxicillin with doxycycline. But Jan, because this came in and we had another listener question about it, I asked around and I have found people who say, oh yeah, I do azithro and doxy because they both have a little bit of resistance for strep. So if I combine them both together, I'm getting less. So I think this did come from somewhere, but it is not the IDSA recommendations. Yeah. And thank you to Jessica and to anyone else who wrote in to keep us honest. Yeah. You know, we're not perfect. And I think, you know, it just reflects the fact that practice is all over the place. And you know, azithromycin and doxy, some people might think, well, azithro covers the atypicals. And so then doxy is sort of covering my core bacteria. But it is true that that is not the recommended combination. So thank you for pointing that out. And, you know, we'll try better the next time. Yep. And your recommendations are spot on, Jessica. So amoxicillin alone for healthy people. You could do doxy alone if you can't get the amox or augmentin or a cephalosporin plus doxy or a fluoroquinolone. So those are good recommendations to remember when we're dealing with community acquired pneumonia and remembering that Azithro alone just doesn't work so well anymore because the resistance for strep is just far too high. And one final point to make on this particular segment is that Justin Morgenstern wrote in and said, you know, we don't really have to cover atypicals. And that's why amoxicillin alone has been recommended as first-line therapy. Amoxicillin does not cover atypical bugs. And what we're recognizing more and more is that those atypicals are, well, exactly that. They're atypical. They are uncommon we are not seeing those that frequently as the cause of pneumonia, and it means that we can shift the way that we are covering pneumonia patients, community-acquired pneumonia patients, when they show up in the ED. Letter two. Right. Now we have a second mailbag entry here, which is about our MRAP back in June when Rick Bucata on Rick's Rant spoke with Tom Mayer about burnout. 
and our beloved MRAP MacGyver tip faculty member, Whit Fisher. Whit Fisher. My favorite name ever, Whit Fisher, had some thoughts on this piece that he wanted to share. So I listened to Rick Bucata and Tom Mayer's talk about burnout, resilience, and adaptability in the June edition of MRAP. And I liked the overall positive message about getting our healthcare systems to invest in the welfare of people. One big paradox was missing, though, and that's the fact that what burns us out is often replenishing others. I see replenishment as the opposite of burnout. It makes you feel secure instead of uncertain, stronger instead of weaker, invigorated instead of exhausted, and important instead of undervalued. But replenishment usually comes at someone else's expense, and lately that someone is us. For example, suppose there's a new policy in your department that says that a bacitracin packet has to be pulled from an cell by a nurse with an electronic order every time. No more verbal orders. It's a few more clicks for each patient, it slows things down, and it's not really solving a meaningful problem. That's a small slice of burnout for you. But somewhere else, there's a person whose livelihood depends on the creation, interpretation, and enforcement of rules. And if that person declared, hey, our rules are perfect, we don't need any new ones, their job would be in danger. So by always creating or adjusting rules, even useless ones, they're getting a tiny slice of replenishment from the slice of burnout they just created for you. They're getting a little bit of job security, of relevance, and control. And this effect has snowballed more and more and more. When your department has to hold borders longer and longer, it burns out the ED staff. But the inpatient staff gets real protection from that extra stress, that extra work, the extra risk of treating patients in hallways that you now have to deal with. Your chaotic situation gives them better control of patient workload upstairs. Your burnout is their replenishment. If your department loses an ED doc, management may say, well, okay, we're adding an extra hour to your shift, and instead of supervising three APPs, now you're going to supervise five. That burns you out more. But the hospital corporation is getting replenished because they're getting a little more work for a bit less money. These little cigarette burns accumulate over time. Burnout creep is like barnacles attaching themselves to a ship. Each one is tiny, but the buildup can be disastrous to the vessel in the end. The barnacles are having a great time, though. This is usually the part where someone says, Hold on now, you know, if an ED doc gets burned out and turns to drugs or gets depressed or commits suicide or quits medicine or all of the above, it's bad for everyone. Burnout is a problem that affects all of us. And that's where terms like resilience and organizing the culture and investing in people comes in. But I'm not talking about the kind of resilience or investment that's good for us. I'm talking about corporate resilience that makes us easier to replace faster when we crash and burn. We've all heard that by 2030, there's going to be a huge surplus of ED-trained physicians. Do you think that's an accident? I do not. This has been a thoughtfully cultivated form of corporate resilience against burnout. Instead of investing time and money and effort in making the doctors we already have happier and stronger, let's just find a way to adapt to their loss by investing in plentiful replacements. It's cheaper. It's a bit like saying, hey, instead of spending all this money on childcare for the kids we have, let's just shoot up the stork with amphetamine so it brings us more babies faster. Amphetamines are way cheaper. It's human nature to want what's best for your group, even if it makes another group's life a little harder. But I think it's wishful thinking at its worst to pretend that if we just explain our misery better, 
our administrators and corporate medical teams will suddenly see the light of day and out of concern for us, make their own comfort and security less certain. We are not all in this together and we're not all on the same team. And there's nothing wrong with embracing that and admitting that. Different aspects of the medical system have objectives that are contrary to our well-being. There may be no malice there at all, but we won't even begin to find solutions until we can admit to ourselves that we aren't the center of anybody else's universe but our own. We can't afford to have that kind of conceit about ourselves. Nobody else will put our well-being on a par with their own unless we make it essential that they do. This doesn't mean there aren't positive things we can do, and I appreciate Rick and Tom making the effort to figure them out. If we add a little more contrast to the picture, though, we're likely to see everything a little more clearly. Usually, the best answer is between the most extreme perspectives, and I'm guessing that this is no exception. Just my random thoughts, and I hope someone out there finds them helpful. Jam, that is our mailbag for the month. Some really good pieces, thought-provoking, and again, always good when we make a mistake to know that the MRAP audience is out there keeping us honest. So we'll be back next month with more of these letters. Don't forget to keep those letters coming. Have you heard of John Walter? Well, you have now. A small Wyoming town. Great place. And the birth of old John Walter. Interesting story. Was due to cows that were wrong. That's right, it was cattle country. And in the 1880s, before the town was even called, the most prevalent mammal in the area were cows, owned by the Swan Land and Cattle Company that managed over 100 heads of cattle. And in 1886, engineers from this company surveyed and planned out the town that would become Chugwater. Mega, 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 monster. Like that? All right, Jan, end of the program. It's time for the mega summary, doing the quick review of all of the great stuff that we had, starting, of course, with the rural medicine piece. And, and Jan, you know, we did a little bit of some digging into what do people listen to in MRAP? Mega digging. Everybody listens to the rural medicine. Everybody loves the rural medicine piece. Rural medicine talks. This one wasn't one that I loved. This one scared me a little bit. So uh, let's yes. get a little review here. Yeah, this one scared me too. As The rural medicine pieces are so good at walking through the mindset of somebody who's, you know, dealing with something that's coming in that's really scary. And this one definitely puts you there. This was Vanessa Cardi talking to Julie Veith about a terrifying bariatric airway situation. This was a case of an 800-pound patient, which is 365 kilos for those of you who are in the, the rest of the world that does metric system, coming into a rural hospital with respiratory failure and obtundation, altered mental status. And basically, you know, this was not only about the airway, but it was also about the equipment that you need. I mean, standard EMS and ED stretchers will not accommodate that weight. And even EMS had to get a special bariatric stretcher, and the hospital had to arrange for a bariatric bed to be delivered. They didn't even have one in-house. So, you know, special equipment is required. And this woman arrives. She's on CPAP. She's got an O2 sat in the 80s. She's altered. Her glucose is normal. She has maybe a possible history of asthma. They don't know anything else. And she had gotten some asthma treatment in the field. And they, of course, knew that the approach to her airway was going to be a huge challenge. So what did they do? What can we learn from this? So what they did is they changed her over to BiPAP. So that helped give a little bit more peep and a little bit more ventilatory support. And they got two ED techs to stand on either side of this woman and position her head properly and her airway properly. And they got her sat up to 96% with those two things alone. So then they start sending labs and they see that she's acidotic with this unreadable PCO2, of course, and they do an airway huddle. 
with their ENT and their anesthesiologist who happen to be available. And they all stand around and they talk through what are the options. And none of them sound very good because she's got no pulmonary reserve. So what they decide is that they're going to stay the course. What they're doing at the moment seems to be working. She was showing signs of at least stabilizing, if not improving. And so sometimes less is more. And this is one of those situations. The anesthesiologist did put in an art line so they could get reliable blood pressures because that was an issue. And then they could draw ABGs frequently to see if things were going in the right direction. And this woman generally starts to slowly improve. And so some summary points here was that those airway basics of positioning the airway properly and getting good non-invasive ventilation on board will be adequate in someone like this with respiratory failure and may stem the need for you to go into a very, very risky airway maneuver. And then with a bariatric patient like this, you're going to need some special equipment. They were basically working from that bariatric EMS stretcher the whole time. And you got to think about, do we have the right stuff for patients like this? And how can I get it? The restraint demonstrated by Julie and her team is absolutely incredible because, Jen, we all look at this patient and we're like, let's just put the tube in and be done with it because I got other stuff to do. But this is kind of the way that it needs to be done in these cases where there really isn't a good approach to taking care of so You might get lucky. Let's be honest. You might get lucky, drop that tube, and nothing happens. Great. But we know that there are so many pitfalls along the way. So the fact that they stayed the course, let it ride with all of the backup around ready to go was absolutely incredible. Can I wear my pigtail catheter to school? Our next segment was one that we mentioned up at the top of the show, talking about pigtail catheters with Weingart in the Crit Care mailbag. And Jan, I think it's really important for us to understand more about these because we're using them so much more. So these are narrow bore catheters, somewhere in the 8 to 14 French range. And Scott goes through some different scenarios saying that if the patient has a trauma and they're hemodynamically unstable, go right to the chest tube. Don't screw around with a pigtail catheter. That's not the place for the win. Those patients need a finger thoracostomy and then a chest tube to be placed. But in the stable patients, most of these will be amenable to pigtail catheter placement, maybe a larger one if you have a hemothorax. Even if you have an empyema, it might be reasonable to place a pigtail catheter. A lot of this should be done in discussion with your trauma colleagues, with your CT surgeons to find out what they're going to be doing. Because the last thing you want to do is pop a pigtail in them. You admit them to CT surgery and they're like, yeah, we're going to have to change that over to a chest tube. That doesn't make any sense for the patient or for you or for anyone. So come up with these plans together of what you're going to do. And then from there, Scott goes into how he approaches putting in a pigtail with a real focus on making sure that no matter what the situation is, or the patient is stable, do an ultrasound so you can find that landing zone where you want to place your pigtail catheter into. You can do some measurements to see how far from the skin it is to get to that pocket. And then if you put in your pigtail and you don't get return of fluid or air at the measured distance, come back out and start over. Don't keep pushing further in. That's probably not gonna be the solution and probably going to create more problems. And all of this was actually stimulated by a listener case and question. And so Scott goes on to answer what happened in that listener case or what he thinks could have happened and how it could have been avoided. I think it's a good segment just to give us a good overview of pigtail catheters. If you are not comfortable with these, this is a really good place to go to a skills lab and learn how to use them. But Jan, I think they're pretty easy to use once you do a couple and the patients are so much happier to not get a chest tube. Absolutely. I'd rather have one of these for sure. But I like the differentiation between there are times where this is the right thing to do. And there are times where you still want to go for your traditional chest tube. I'll say that up at our SICU, I know that they have pretty much changed over to these pigtails in most situations. So they are becoming more widespread. I personally don't have as much experience with them, but I 
did enjoy this segment. And we do have a video on MRAP HD that you can go to to also watch about pigtail placement with some pearls there. And we'll put the link in the show notes as well. No surprise that a unit run by Kenji Inaba is going to be cutting edge and using the right thing. So, I mean, Kenji's been talking about this. I feel like he's been talking about it for almost a decade that we should be switching over to pigtail. So it's good to know that he practices what he preaches. Dr. Dr. Al Al Sacchetti. Sacchetti. Next up was Al Sacchetti with a piece called What You Say Matters. And this is a quick little piece, but it's got, you know, it's these pearls from someone who's been doing this for decades, who is, you can just, you just know that Al is a good clinician. And so I really took a lot away from this. You know, he kind of plays off Mel's What You Do Matters, and he wants to make the point What You Say Matters. You know, as a doctor, you are a highly respected person in your community and people listen to you. And so even the comments that you make to patients that are not even medical, but in terms of supporting young parents, telling them, telling their parents how they're doing a good job, you know, all these little comments that you make really, really matter. And he gives a couple good examples of that. You know, it's humor, it's complimenting people who maybe aren't getting credit for all the caregiving they're doing, things like that, that just remind you about the effect that you can have on patients and families with just the words that you choose at the bedside. It's just one of those kind of heartwarming pieces that reminds you about those joys of medicine that we sometimes forget about in the day-to-day, you know, computer clicking that we do all the time. And you said humor, and Al always reminds us, when you use humor, just be careful because you don't know what's going to hit, what's not going to hit. But what always hits Jan is a little bit of self-deprecation. A little bit of self-deprecating humor almost always hits well. And, and Al is a master of the little self-deprecating aside. And it just it really, you know, kind of warms everybody to him very quickly. And he's just a master at it. So any of these little segments where you can learn from these guys is absolutely great. Dr. Amol Matu. And it's a great transition to our next piece with Amal, another person who's a master clinician. Actually, we all know that Amal was one of Al's mentees. So it, it really makes a lot of sense of how they kind of use that humor to endear themselves to people. But Amal's piece is not the communication piece. It's about SVT and troponins. And honestly, if you want to see Amal get mad, Jan, you tell him, oh, I had a patient with SVT where I ordered a troponin. And I think actually when you say that, he comes to your house and slaps you in the back of the head because really we have to be careful of where we are ordering this test. And Amal gets into a case that was signed out to him of a 44-year-old man who comes in with a narrow complex, tachycardia, clearly SVT, breaks with adenosine, but someone sends a troponin in spite of the fact that the patient didn't have any chest pain, really didn't have any shortness of breath. And we go through the literature telling us that a lot of these troponins will be positive, but SVT is not a presenting rhythm of a patient who has an acute coronary occlusion MI. And so they're really false positive tests that can lead to a lot of additional workup. And that's what we really have to be careful about. So Amal cautions us and says, you know, most of the time, the vast, vast, vast majority of the time when you have a patient with SVT, you don't need to get a troponin. And the little ischemic changes that you see on that ECG when they're in SVT, those are rate related. It's not acute coronary occlusion. So convert them out of the SVT, repeat the ECG. And if the repeat ECG looks okay, the patient doesn't have symptoms concerning for ACS, don't get the trope. Don't go down that pathway. Don't make Amal fly to your house and slap you in the back of the head. I mean, this piece makes so much sense. And it is so true. The troponin is just going to make your life more difficult. I mean, you know, you're sending a test where you corner yourself and you're not sure what to do with it. So don't send it in the first place. And I know it's hard. You wheel in this person, you know, you, they bring in the crash cart, you attach the pads, you know, you're going to convert them over. And then in the end, you're just going to discharge them home with no labs. It just, you know, it seems like it just goes against the grain. But 
really, if you step back and think about it, that's exactly what should happen. Now, he also makes the point that there are some people where a troponin makes sense, and that's the person who, after their SVT, you know, they're still, you know, complaining of some chest pain. You're actually worried that something's going on. Like, that's when you could send a troponin if you really are worried about something that's concerning on the EKG after the conversion, et cetera. So there is some role for it. But, you know, just sending one routinely makes no sense. Absolutely. Right, off you go. Our next segment was on blood products and whole blood with Dan McCollum and Ryan Knight. And whole blood use is one of Ryan's things. That's one of the things that he has done a lot of work on and thinks that we really should be moving towards and embracing. And he will admit readily that there's not a ton of data driving it forward, but we're starting to get that data coming out. We all know that when we have a bleeding trauma patient, we need to get them blood. And we know that we should be aiming for this one-to-one-to-one ratio. And Ryan says, you know, the best way to do a one-to-one-to-one ratio is to give them whole blood because whole blood already is in that one-to-one-to-one ratio. And whole blood can take out some of the logistical challenges in the blood resuscitation because of the thawing time of FFP, the cross-checking, the transport, it can be delayed. And so even when you get that FFP, you're already three, four, five units of packed cells in, making it really hard to catch up. So one of the things that Ryan suggests if you're not using whole blood is to start with white. Start with your FFP, which means that you need to have some of that FFP thawed and ready to go immediately. If you happen to work in one of those places, that's great. Start with white. Now you know that you're operating a little bit ahead of the curve on that one-to-one-to-one and then follow with your packed red cells. He also notes that it's really important to assign the task of tracking components to somebody who's not the person running the resuscitation because it's too easy to lose track of it. And we've heard this a couple of times. Andrew Petrosoniak talked about this. We've heard Weingart talk about it. Kenji talk about it. The way to offload this is to assign it as a task for someone. And even better is to have like a little whiteboard where you can just tally up how many of each unit you've given so that nobody has to remember it. It's just kind of there in everybody's face. We're going to hear more from Ryan Knight down the line. He is keeping an eye on the data that's being published. So when that data comes out on whole blood, we can kind of push it through and maybe that'll convince some people to move in that direction. I think, Jan, a lot of places don't use whole blood. In fact, most places that I've worked at don't have whole blood available. But the places that I've worked that do have it, it is a lot easier to do that one-to-one-to-one resuscitation and keep on top of that transfusion. Yes, we are one of the places that has whole blood available. Not surprising, as you mentioned, Kenji and all the other trauma surgeons who do a lot of publishing at our institution, we have it. And it really is a hot topic in trauma. But I agree with you that, you know, the evidence really isn't there to say that it has a mortality benefit, et cetera. It just does make a lot of sense. So I do also have my eye on this topic as well. It's an interesting topic. It makes a lot of sense to me. But, you know, and this is what the military has been doing. And that's, you know, often trauma surgeons and military go hand in hand. And, and there's a lot going on there. But I really appreciated this piece. Pediatric Pearls. Next up was Eileen Claudius talking to Chris Lemon, giving some recommendations for medical apps in general, with a little focus on pediatric medical apps. And if you're into apps and really who isn't these days, you know, this is the segment you want to listen to. He gives his top five, and then he goes through a couple other ones that are interesting. And I'll just give you the one-liner on his top five. Number one is Pedistat. I think most people know Pedistat. It's really a great, like, super rapid reference. You can just plug in quick info, and then it gives you the right size of everything. It's like a Braslow, you know, in your hand with all the information you need. Number two is Easy TBSA. This is a free app that makes calculating your total body surface area burned super easy where you can just use your finger and like draw on a little guy and, and, you know, it calculates it out depending on the weight of the patient, et cetera. So it's really easy. The third was Sublux. This is a 
plain film assistant helps you read plain films. It's for non-radiologists. It's a little basic, but it's really nice if you're also in a teaching place to use it to kind of teach plain film reading. Number four was Visual DX. It's a customizable differential diagnosis builder. This one is a little pricey, but has some nice perks to it. The next one was called Simply Sayin, S-A-Y-N, which is an app that communicates medical situations to children in language they understand with pictures and sounds to get them ready for things. Kind of cool. And then he mentioned three apps that can distract kids who are getting procedures. And we will link all of this in the show notes, of course, so you can check these things out. But really a great listen. And of course, Chris and Eileen didn't mention it, but it just goes without saying that the best medical apps that are out there are, of course, Corpendium and the MRAP app, Jen. I mean, you have to have those on your phone, obviously, right? I mean, no question. Yeah, now I can no keep question. getting my paycheck from Mel that I have plugged our own apps. But, but there's some great stuff on there. So if you haven't checked them out, check them out. But this was really helpful. I actually really like the radiology one, Jen, because it's nice to always have some normals to look at when you're looking at the film that's in front of you. So um, I really like that one. The total body surface area, I don't see a lot of burns which makes that app much more valuable to me because I'm really bad at calculating it. And, and we've had a couple of segments talking about how, in general, we tend to overestimate the total body surface area, which can have some deleterious effects for the patient. So I love having some extra apps on my phone to go to. Our next segment was The Man from Ilcor with Justin Carlson and Stuart Swadron talking about some of the updates from Ilcor, and they really focus in on three. The first is about VSE therapy, so vasopressin steroids and epinephrine in cardiac arrest. The recommendation from Ilcor is that this is not ready for prime time. The data for in-hospital cardiac arrest is sketchy. It's not, it's not great. And there is no data for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. The second one, and this is the one that I think people are going to get a little angry about, is POCUS during arrest. And Ilcor says, you know, we recommend against routine use of POCUS, but we have to remember that they're basing their recommendations on the literature available. And there's just not really great literature telling us that POCUS helps with outcomes in cardiac arrest patients. Although, Jan, I use it on all of my cardiac arrest patients, and I find that it is extremely useful, especially when you get good at doing it without interrupting CPR. And that's a critical piece that ILCOR stresses, is that we shouldn't be doing something that doesn't have a proven benefit that might detract us from something that we know has a proven benefit. And then their third one, and Jan, this is the one that, you know, people might come after us with pitchforks and torches, is about ACLS and neonatal life support training. ILCOR gives us the recommendation that all members of a team that are going to be accredited for doing advanced life support should take one of these courses to show that they have that system in place. Justin and SWAD get into this a little bit, Jan, and they kind of point out that this recommendation is not necessarily for the emergency physician. It's a recommendation for the entire team. And so having a little bit of a framework for that entire team can be helpful, but I'm not a big fan of these merit badges. I know you are not either, Jan. I certainly am not. I, although I take the point that for people who don't do emergency medicine training, you know, it, there's some value there because there's lots of people that are responsible for life support, et cetera. So okay, but I'm still stuck on the POCUS during arrest because I agree with you. I find it very valuable. There's also an emotional component to codes and cardiac arrest. And, you know, seeing the heart and no activity there is helpful for the team sometimes to let go, you know, and to process what's happening to the human being in front of them. So there's that role. It's not an evidence-based role, but it's a, certainly a practical one. And so, you know, that one I do struggle with. Yeah. And I, I think it's also hard for us to Put ourselves into the place of that one doc shop where you're doing a resuscitation and you have to 
run the CPR and run the code and then also use the ultrasound. And, and I can see how that can be very difficult, if not impossible. And in those cases, I can see dropping the ultrasound by the wayside. But I think if you've got the bodies, it can be really helpful. And a lot of this is skilling up so that you can do it while not interrupting your CPR. Our next segment was Medical Legal Briefs, Chest Pain in Kids with Susie Demeester and Mike Weinstock. This is an interesting case of a 16-year-old boy who comes in with chest pain, one episode of vomiting, and then they go through multiple return visits before we get to the output. Now, sometimes these medical legal cases can be very difficult to navigate, and the end of it really is Susie and Mike trying to teach us how we can do a better job of catching these things, also understanding that sometimes you can't catch these things no matter how good of a job you do. But they go through each of the visits noting that the vast majority of the time when a pediatric patient comes in with chest pain, it's absolutely 100% benign. 98% of kids with chest pain are a non-cardiac origin, so most of them aren't going to have much. But also remembering that a 16-year-old's physiology and anatomy pretty close to an adult in many cases, so just keep that in mind as well. In this particular case, the patient's discharged, returns three days later for a second visit, now has increasing chest pain that's spreading across the chest, Susie and Mike use this as a reminder just to keep in the back of your mind, one, maybe I missed something the first time this patient came through, and two, when you have chest pain plus another symptom, you have to start worrying about some of the other pathologies that you should be concerned about. So things like chest pain plus syncope or chest pain plus a seizure, chest pain plus dyspnea. If you have these combinations, start thinking about things like dissection or pulmonary embolism. A patient's discharged again and comes back six months later with a ruptured thoracic aneurysm. And we know that these thoracic aneurysm cases are so difficult. In fact, Susie and Mike go ahead and quote Dr. Aleftriades. We have talked about this before. Difficulty in diagnosis, delay in diagnosis, or failure to diagnosis are so common with thoracic aortic dissection as to approach the norm of this disease, even in the best of hands, rather than the exception. And I think it's important for us to remember that, but also say, could I have found this? Was there something in this patient's story that could have led me to this? It's a really tricky one, but if we keep in mind things like chest pain plus, the intensity, how fast the onset, maximal pain, maybe we can be led to this diagnosis, not just in this kit, but in all the patients we see with dissection. I mean, it's such a needle in the haystack for all the patients we see with chest pain. You know, I don't, you know, these medical legal segments can sometimes make you feel like you need to do more tests, do more things. And I hope that's not the take home for most people. I think the take home is there are going to be things that you're going to miss. You can't be perfect. And, you know, ask more questions and try to use that spidey sense to try to know where that needle in the haystack is. But it's a tough case, honestly. I mean, I like that quote at the end. It's the norm, you know, to miss it. I get it. Bounce backs always, you know, when someone keeps coming back, coming back, that gives you another opportunity to think again. But, you know, boy, the answer is not to be doing chest CTs on a bunch of young people who have chest pain. Okay? Absolutely. That is definitely not the answer. No, we're going to do way more harm. And, and Susie and Mike point that out as well. The kid's bad outcome was six months after presentation to the ED. So this also kind of puts in the back of our heads, you know, maybe I'm not going to find anything today. Maybe there isn't anything really alarming, but let's make sure the kid has follow-up. Let's make sure that we get the kid plugged in if they're not getting proper follow-up. Maybe that would have been made along the way, but six months after visit, I mean, Jan, I don't know. That's really tough to say that that visit was really responsible for the bad outcome six months later. Compression. Send. And finally, we have Jason Woods talking to Dr. Javier Lassa about eCPR in kids. Dr. Lassa is a pediatric intensivist at Texas Children's who specializes in cardiac intensive care and 
eCPR. He's a very well-published guy who knows a lot about it. And so he describes sort of the current state of the art in pediatric eCPR. You know, pediatric, it turns out, pediatric eCPR, the use of ECMO, really predated adults. And it was primarily driven by cardiac surgeons who were operating on congenital heart patients. So in this world, it's been around for a long time. A few kind of take-home clinical notes about it for us emergency physicians, which is one, there's at this point no evidence to support or refute making any changes to your usual PALS algorithms if you are in a situation where they're performing the cannulation. They talk a lot about the technicalities of doing a cannulation and what this procedure looks like, but they talk a lot about, you know, should we be changing the compressions or changing what we do and the epinephrine dosing, et cetera. And although there are pros and cons to the things that we do in PALS while they cannulate, there's no support of actually like changing the algorithms. Unlike adults in, you know, in some places where emergency physicians are performing these cannulations, this is not how it is going down in pediatrics. It is still the surgeons who are doing the cannulations, not even the cardiac intensivists like Dr. Lassa, and they're usually doing it in the OR. So I don't see this coming to a shop near you very quickly. And then, you know, finally, this is a very low-frequency, high-intensity event. And in pediatrics, those types of cases have really evolved to go to, you know, a high level of specialization. And this is no different. It really needs a highly specialized team to pull this off. And you need to have, you know, a definite plan and a place. So, you know, I think that actually, for me, this sort of pushes pediatric eCPR even further away than, you know, adult eCPR. And both of them seem unattainable for most people. But pediatric eCPR is to me even kind of further away after I listen to this. I think it is. I think it's a good segment just to kind of remind us of what's going on, what's out there. I mean, there was a time when we were talking about ECMO and eCPR for adults where everyone was like, nobody's doing that. And now we know that it is going on in a lot of different places. It's not every place, obviously. It's not even nearly half places, but it's a lot more than it was a couple of years ago. So I think it's good for us to know what's going on out there, what's sort of on the cutting edge, and, and what might be making its way to our shops, especially if we have a pediatric emergency department and other pediatric services in the hospital. So it's a good review of where things are right now. I think, Jan, we might be looking back on this one in a couple of years and saying, oh, look what my shop is talking about. ECPR is coming. So I, I won't be surprised if we look back on this and say that uh, I'm glad that we had a little bit of that context now. Yeah, that might be true. All right, Jan. And with that, we are at the end of the mega summary. We're at the end of the show. We're at the end of the year. It's the end of everything for 2022, Jan. Except the Rappies, which are still coming. Listen for the Rappies. They're after the conclusion. They will be there. You got to listen to them. But everything else, we're pretty much done with for the year, Jan. And it was a really fantastic year. We had a lot of fun. And of course, as always, I'm really looking forward to next year. Yeah, you know, 2023 may bring some changes. You know, there's always some new opportunities for us here at MRAP, and we're looking at all of those. And so we, I look forward to the new year as well. Let's see what happens. Absolutely. And don't forget everyone out there to keep doing what you do, because what you do matters. Next time on MRAP. Heart rate does pick up again normally in pregnancy, but 130 is certainly outside of the realm of normal. And as they were doing the TE, patient ruptured and went into cardiac arrest. And that was 45 minutes after we all knew uh, this is a dissection. She saw a big bruise on the underside of the child's chin and significant bruising behind both of her ears. When I get the kids that are in a susceptible age, under two, who aren't vaccinated, I get blood cultures on them. The mother usually objects. I said, well, if you vaccinated the kid, I wouldn't have to be sticking them. Hey, I'm Rap Slap Slappers. Okay, it's December. So 
It's time to talk about Santa Claus. Yeah, the happy bearded fat guy who lives at the North Pole spends all year making toys and tracking the behavior of your children, but then delivers several thousand metric tons of merchandise to every participating household worldwide in just a few hours with a single flying vehicle. And the big question we need to ask ourselves is... Is he real? No. The big question is... Are you a bad parent if you perpetuate an obvious lie to your children because you think it's adorable? No. I mean... Yes, you are a bad parent, but no, that's not the big question. Uh, the big question is, how did Santa gain all that weight? What? Yeah, because originally, St. Nicholas was just a normal dude. He's the patron saint of children, and he reached sainthood by doing all kinds of good stuff, like helping a poor dad marry off his daughters by paying their dowries. And by paying, I mean he secretly threw bags of money through the window at night. And his dad was like, he didn't say, hey, where did this money come from? He was more like, oh, I finally got some money to pay for my daughter's dowries. To be fair, though, this was the 4th century. And if he hadn't done that, they probably would have been sold into prostitution. So anyway, St. Nick, a skinny guy. Then, while the English forgot about St. Nick, the Dutch were keeping him alive as Sinterklaas. And they gave him a red Pope hat. And they celebrated St. Nicholas Day on December 6th. And when the Dutch came to America, they brought Sinterklaas with them. And he didn't really start getting some attention until around the 1800s, when Dutch culture was becoming a little bit more popular, and they renamed and Englishified the name into Santa Claus. And at this point, his popularity hadn't really affected his weight too much. Then, in the 1860s, Thomas Nass, an illustrator for Harper's Ferry, added the North Pole bit and the toy factory. It was only in the 1880s when Nass drawings started chubbing him up. And then in 1902, Santa's life changed forever. Lyman Frank Baum, the guy that wrote The Wonderful Wizard of Oz and the 13 other Oz books that nobody talks about, that guy wrote a book called The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus in which he really fleshed out the whole Santa myth. You know, he's abandoned as a child and he grew up raised by a nymph. He's friends with the magical creatures of the forest and when he grew up, he started whittling wood toy cats for kiddos and make them happy. They became so popular, he turned his living room to a workshop, and he got some elves to help him to produce more product. It's actually a great supply and demand story, just without all the capitalism. Anyway, the book really boosted his popularity, and now he started appearing on magazine covers like The Saturday Evening Post, illustrated by Norman Rockwell, A Boy's Life, Greeting Cards, Ads, and then, in 1931, he got his biggest endorsement, again, without all the money in contracts, with Coca-Cola. That's where it all went downhill. He was in so many ads, drinking Coca-Cola. The only real holiday refreshment. BMI shot up, and he's never really recovered. Ho, ho, ho! The best way to stay merry is to stay on top of your insulin shots. Hey, so Coca-Cola made Santa fat? No. Haddon Sunblom, the illustrator commissioned by Coca-Cola, made him fat. But, you know, all the empty calories from the Coke and the sedentary lifestyle probably didn't help either. Sedentary? Wait, 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 what do you mean? He's making all those toys. You think he's whittling all those toys himself? I mean, he's got millions of toys to make these days with increasing complexity. And the workshop's so big, he's basically a huge overseer. And you can do that by sitting in a chair. Oh, wait, what? You guys are talking like he's real. Is he real? Come on, what do you think? He's as real as Krampus. Krampus? Krampus. Ugh, Krampus. Who's Krampus? Krampus is a horned, devil-looking goat man that punishes bad kids while the other kids get present. <laughs> yes, then I stuff them into my sack and kidnap them forever. Yeah, it's the German addition to the Santa Claus myth. It's an evil demon guy yes. who abducts all the kids who do bad things, like stealing cookies or picking their noses. Wait, how long does he keep the kids? How long do you keep the kids? Indefinitely. Indefinitely? Like forever? How else do you teach a child not to be bad? 
Well, if you bother to read any of the mountains of pediatric literature on the negative long-term effects of corporal punishment in children, you'll find that the main ones are increased aggression and the perpetration of violence. The very behavior that Cramps here is trying to change. Yeah, so congratulations on turning a normal child who steals cookies into a murdering psychopath. No. Happy Krampus Enlightenment Day, everybody. Oh, no. What have I done?